0: And welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we're here to talk about Lord of the Rings.
1: Yes, as you may expect after hearing the last podcast.
0: Yes, last week we talked about the world of J.R.R. Tolkien in literature form. We talked about The Hobbit the book, The Lord of the Rings the book, and some of the supplemental material. This week we are talking about The Lord of the Rings film trilogy. Came out from 2001 to 2003, directed by Peter Jackson. Will be followed up soon by The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and its sequels. Yes. Which we are very excited for. Very, very much so. Yes. And to remind you, this is the second part of our sort of three-part retrospective of Tolkien-related stuff. So, again, we'll be talking about Lord of the Rings on film this week. But next week, we will be offering an audio commentary, which you can sync up with the film, on The Hobbit. Not the live-action New Hobbit. that's like three hours long. The eighty-minute animated Hobbit by Rankin Bass from nineteen seventy-seven. Yes, if you have not seen it, see it. It's great. It's awesome.
1: Awesome, it's, especially if you if you have kids or you like babysitting or something. It's
0: or, a great kids film. Yes, great kids film. We love it. We're going to be talking about it. Do a little commentary. Uh, you can sync it up. So get a copy of it ready. Uh, it's out of print on DVD. You can buy it on iTunes. I believe you can buy it on Zune. Um, you probably find it in other places too. Find an old VHS somewhere. Yeah, so those are there. Are plenty of those lying around. Yeah, and uh, just sync it up, and and you know we'll have that'll be the main part of the podcast next week. But if you don't really want to do the commentary thing, we'll probably tack something on to the end of that with other discussions. Yeah, but that'll be sort of the primary thrust of the podcast next week, and of course the week after that, The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey will have been out for two or three days, and we will be discussing that movie in full detail. So have seen that in two weeks. Yep. Yep. So in any case, before we get started, I should probably note. I have a cold this week, my voice is probably sort of crackly and deeper than usual, and I, you know, may choke to death somewhere in the middle of the podcast.
1: If you do, I'll, I'll just keep it going. That's so, good. That's why that's
0: why we have two people. It's the yeah, buddies. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Yeah,
1: it's, we got redundancies. So it's just like, one of us drops, we just keep on going. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. So, Sean, you want to get us started here? Tell us about the Lord of the Rings film trilogy.
1: Okay, so yes, the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, as you said, came out in, from 2001 to 2003, and, and we were talking about this before the podcast started, but we were actually pretty young when they came out, but it doesn't feel like we were. No. It, like, it, to me, it feels like the Lord of the Rings films came out like a couple of years ago. Like, I always feel like they came out a couple of years ago, and I have no idea why.
0: It's, it's a weird thing, because they've, they've sort of been so omnipresent in sort of our movie-going lives since they first came out, but they never feel any less fresh, I feel, to a certain degree. Yeah, they because, always feel new to me. Because they're so big, and there's so much to sort of explore within the movies, and if you're going to watch them, you do have to kind of commit to 11, 12 hours of viewing.
1: Yeah, if you have the extended editions, which are right. the
0: versions you should have. And I think that's another point to make, is that, I mean, even though the last extended cut came out in 2004, so it's not like that was much later, but still they always felt like there was new Lord of the Rings stuff kind of coming out. Yeah. So 2001, you had Fellowship, but then before Two Towers came out, you had that extended cut. So that was sort of being revised. And then Two Towers did the same thing, Return of the Kingdom did the same thing. Yeah. And even once they slowed down, there's been theatrical re-releases at times, and... New versions and it's like Blu-ray versions, and right? Everything. Um, in fact, they're doing for The Hobbit on Saturday, December eighth. Theaters across the nation are doing a, a marathon of all three extended cuts in theaters, and I'm going to that. It sounds fun. It's kind of, sounds kind of brutal, but yeah, fun at the same time. Yeah, I've never done. i never sat down and watched all three movies back to back. So
1: I haven't either. It's it's yeah. like are movies that. I so, like I wouldn't even want to like I'd I'd rather have a little bit of break in between them right like that's I mean I always watch them in quick succession when I watch them on DVD like I don't just like I'm just going to watch the fellowship of the ring I'll be like I'm going to spend this week and watch a movie like every other night Exactly. Right. that's how I watch those movies
0: right and I think it's sort of interesting you do sort of have to have a break between them when you usually watch them. And part of that is that's how they were designed to be seen. There was a year between them. Yeah. And we'll talk about that when we get into the individual movies, but that's one of the brilliant things Jackson did, was structure them in such a way that they work as standalone films. Not in such a way that you're you're just going to pick Two Towers off the shelf and have that as a full experience, but you can watch the Two Towers and it's satisfying Yeah. before you move on to Part 3.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In any case, so yes, these came out between 2001 to 2003, and this is the other thing people kind of forget about them, is that they were completely 100% innovative when they came out. No one had ever tried anything like this. In fact, no one has tried anything like this, except Peter Jackson a second time with the Hobbit trilogy.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's almost hard to imagine what opportunity would arise for something like this to happen again. Because, you know, the Lord of the Rings franchise and the name is so strong that it sort of, there's a lot, like those movies can sort of thrive off of that and you get a lot of really good buzz because everyone's heard of The Lord of the Rings. I don't think, like, an original IP is like, we're going to make this new trilogy and, like, create this whole new world and do, like, this whole thing and, like, make these ridiculous three-hour-long movies and stuff out of, yeah. like, just an original idea and film. I don't think that would happen.
0: No, but, I mean, they, they did shoot them all back-to-back. Not even back-to-back. They just like, shot yeah, them the concurrently time, yeah. as one movie. I think this, the the production schedule was, all the Hobbit stuff was at at the start, sort of all that, like, book one of Fellowship. But other than that, it was all concurrent. And... Uh, You know, this is the other thing we should talk about is I highly recommend on the extended cuts, sitting down sometime and just watching all the appendices material on the bonus discs, because that's almost as good as the movies themselves, because the story of the making of these films is incredible. Yeah,
1: no, that's definitely the best bonus material stuff I've ever seen on DVDs. It was an adventure unto itself. It's Because it
0: was such a massive undertaking. I mean, 15 months of principal photography, and that doesn't even count all the pickup shots they did for each movie the summer before they came out. Yeah. But the best part of those is just all the
1: stories about how people got just like hurt and maimed on the set of The Lord of the Rings. It's just...
0: It's unbelievable. The best one, I think, Peter Jackson and Sean Astin described this in the Fellowship features is, you know the scene at the end of Fellowship, Sam is running out to meet Frodo's boat because Frodo's trying to leave alone and Sam won't let him and he runs off the shore into the water? Turns out there was a big shard of glass in that water and it impaled Sean Astin's foot. Mm -hmm. Piece of glass impaled his foot, and there's footage of him ripping it out. I don't know how they got Clarence to put that on the DVD. It's really bloody. Kudos to Sean Astin, because he handles it pretty well. I mean, he's just sort of... And Elijah Wood is a dick to him, just running around making jokes. (laughs) Like, they have all this, you know, candid footage of this. And it's funny just how, like, funny Elijah Wood finds this. Yeah,
1: all the the Hobbits, I always thought were... All of them, like, the actual actors were really fucking funny. They are, yeah. they, They made a really good team offset, too. They Based did. on all the stuff in the bonus features.
0: Yeah, so totally. And then the, then the other best injury is when uh, Vigo Mortensen, Aragorn they've just found the bodies of all the Urukai that, that they have taken Merry and Pippin. Right, the Rohirrim yeah. have just come in and killed them all, and they think, the Rohirrim think they killed Merry and Pippin too, because they weren't really, it was night, they weren't discerning. They yeah, and they Aragorn
1: finds one of their brooches or whatever in the uh, pile. Right, so, so he's, he's
0: mad, he kicks one of the Urukai's head and goes,
1: Aah! He gives out this really loud shout, And why did he give out that shout, Sean? Because he broke his fucking toe when he kicked the helmet. And they kept that take. Like, they did that, like, five different takes or something like that. And on the last one, he broke his Beagle Mortons and broke his toe and he kicked the helmet. And so when he was crying out in pain, he was fucking crying out in pain. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Jackson's like, yeah, leave it in. I mean, it's a great movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great fucking shout, but it does kind of make it hard to. Like every time I watch that scene now, I like that occurs to me where it's like, oh Jesus, these poor people. Yeah, you just not knowing that he broke his toe makes that scene kind of hard to watch. It's just like, oh God.
0: Yeah, yeah, that looks like it really fucking hurt. Totally. So yeah, lots of good injury stories. But anyway, again, fifteen months of principal photography, this massive cast of a lot of them kind of unknowns or sort of up and coming actors, which is yeah. amazing in and of itself. That would not happen today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just, again, and, and this is an interesting point, too. These movies, the final budget for the entire trilogy combined was $280 million. That is nothing today. Yeah. There are individual movies made for more than that. And this was three films, and because of the budget, it is still the most profitable film venture of all time, I believe. Um, Avatar may have surpassed it, but then again, Avatar... Avatar
1: cost a shit ton of money.
0: Yeah. And... We'll see. I mean, uh, these movies obviously had individual marketing budgets, but, again, you they made up the cost of production on Fellowship alone, and then Two Towers and Return of the King were pure profit. It was an amazing business model, and that's probably what prompted people later on in the decade to start doing, you know, two-part adaptations and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But with Lord of the Rings, this was the only way you could do it. Yeah, no, Lord of the Rings is...
1: That's, I mean, that was one of the things when they're like making the movies is that Lord of the Rings is really considered for the longest time unfilmable. Unfil- unfil- unfilmable. Kind of yeah. like Watchmen where it's like, there's so much to the Lord of the Rings that it's, and especially the Lord of the Rings really takes advantage of it being a book. Like it's very much a book book. Yeah. It's not like, I don't know, like that's
2: it's Harry not Potter or something either. like
1: that where it's like you can kind of picture and you have to cut a lot of stuff out, but you can kind of see the movie. It's like it's Lord of the Rings... I I'm reading those books. I still can't imagine like how the hell would you make this into a movie because there's so much there. And And I
0: think the key to that, and we'll talk about all the adaptation, I think that has to be a key part of our discussion here is how they adapted it because it was brilliant. Yeah. But the key thing is here is that Peter Jackson, Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh, who wrote the scripts, they were huge fans of the books and they understood Tolkien as intimately as anyone does Mm -hmm. but they were also willing to make changes and they had their own vision for the series and that's key. Yeah, Because a lot of adaptations of books, of TV shows, of musicals, whatever, film is a medium unto itself Just as a book is a medium unto itself. They are mm-hmm. unique mediums, and especially with a work like Lord of the Rings that is a book, book, book. And if you want to make it cinematic, you've got to kind of have some balls and yeah. cut some stuff and, and be willing to piss people off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, Watchmen comparison is actually kind of apt. Where yeah. when the Watchmen film came out, which is again another, with the graphic novel Watchmen is sort of like the ultimate graphic novel. It's yeah. so it so perfectly takes advantage of its form and yes. it's like the the, to the point static where- images.
0: To the point where the illustrator of Watchmen is doing things... Yeah, yeah. like, I think it's the middle chapter of the book. He's doing the thing where you have... Yeah, inverse yeah, Yeah.
1: where the the entire thing is symmetrical. Yeah, yeah, they so perfectly took advantage of what a graphic novel can do that when Zack Snyder made the film adaptation, he didn't... Other than the ending, he made almost no changes. Like, Like, he cut some stuff out, obviously, but it's still a really, really long film. But that... And I like Watchmen as a movie, but... It feels like if they had been a lot more bold with the adaptation, it would have made a much better film. Where yeah. they were sort of they were they were trying to be so respectful to the source material that they did not take advantage of what they could do in adapting it, and so it makes it kind of a parts a kind of dull movie because yeah. you're just taking everything like straight out of the graphic novel. That doesn't work when you're making a movie. The pacing is completely different.
0: Right. I mean, it's an interesting thing where Watchmen feels like you that probably you could cut that three hour movie. Into like a six-episode miniseries, and it would work much better. Yeah, no, because it like, would work better. Their much version much of series. Chapter Two is really good in a vacuum, where you're going through all the different flashbacks completely kills the momentum of the movie. Yeah, exactly. They,
1: they really do, because they just take, like, chapter by chapter the graphic novel and just, like, okay, this section of the movie is just this chapter from the graphic novel, but those sections are meant to be read apart from each other. They're not right. necessarily meant to be read all in an order, and they're also meant to be read. The pacing when you're reading is
0: so different from when you're watching a
1: movie right. where you need the pacing to keep going. You need this momentum to keep watching
0: it. But Lord of, but Lord of the Rings, I think it's safe to say, as a film, is 100% cinematic. I yeah. think... I think you could argue it's the pinnacle of sort of cinema as spectacle in terms of how it does combat and mm-hmm. how it does sweeping epic storytelling and all these things. I mean, it, yeah, it, they're definitely really, really gorgeous films.
1: Particularly, yeah. like I think the most remarkable thing about that I feel about the films is just like sort of the production of it, just the where you really feel like it's Middle Earth. They, yes. they so perfectly create that world that you well, don't here's just a, think it's like taking place in our
0: actual reality. Yeah. Here's a great tidbit from the bonus features is I guess Peter Jackson when, you know, the a Workshop was going to do all the effects for the movies and all mm-hmm. the production design and he told them, like on the day they started the project, he gave this big speech and he said, the goal of these movies from a production design standpoint is that he we, we wanted them to pretend that they had the chance to actually shoot in Middle Earth. We were going to shoot in Middle Earth modern times, but these would be the locations that thousands of years ago this happened. And so we have to fill these locations with Accurate period detail and accurate sets and all these things, and we're doing history. We're not doing a movie. We're doing mm. a historical, you know, drama. And so they would even build sets like Hobbiton months before shooting to let them weather over time. Yeah, and it, it works because it feels lived in. This is Middle Earth. It's not a movie. It's it's a it's like a window to Middle Earth. Yeah,
1: no, I had this one book. I think it's called like Lord of the Rings. Like I, I forget what it was actually called, but it was basically it was about sort of the production of the movies, but it was sort of fictionally consistent. It, it like it wasn't like from like the perse- perspective of someone writing about the films. It was like someone writing about the history of Middle Earth, but using like all the details in the film, and it would have like the weapons, the armor, and that kind of stuff, and like the buildings and the architecture, and it would just sort of have descriptions of it and have, like really close up pictures, and say it's like okay, this is Fullard, because this sword would be used by the Gondorian swordsmen in there. On foot, and they use a big shield, so they need a lighter weight sword and stuff like that. And it sort of really let me see all the thought that went into the production design, because all that's all that stuff they had to think about. They had to make, you know, this is what a Rohir armor would look like, and this is why it would look like that. And it takes some elements from real world, like Roman armor and stuff like that. But they like they thought about all of it, and they created all the motifs, all of the artistic design on the armor. And that's just incredible to me. There's so much detail into every little thing in those films.
0: And to me, why that makes this such a perfect adaptation of Tolkien, even if it's not a 100% accurate adaptation, is that Tolkien was all about the detail. The films have that same level of detail. It's just done in a cinematic way instead yeah. of a literary way. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the key to adaptation. Yeah, right no, there. I, I completely
1: agree. It, it, to me, I know <clears throat> it's, sometimes the Lord of the Rings movies can be kind of controversial among Tolkien fans because they do change a lot. But I think a lot of fans are really unforgiving about that kind of stuff and don't recognize the realities of trying to make something into a movie, and that to what they picture a Lord of the Rings movie as being would suck so hard yeah. because they just want a straight adaptation. Like they want Tom Bombadil and they want like five hours of just watching the Hobbits walk around. It's like, that's not. That th- can't be a movie. You can't no. make that into a movie. That's why everyone thought it was unfilmable, because nobody was thinking outside the box and thinking about how would you seriously try to adapt this, how you would you seriously try to make a film out of this and make it a good film instead of trying to make it a good representation of the book word by word.
0: Yeah. I think the other thing to say when talking about the production design in sort of a, a general standpoint is that these movies were made at a time where computers had not really taken over completely, and Jackson and Weta Workshop were smart enough to use computers for things when they absolutely needed them. Like, you can't do Gollum any other way. He yeah. has to be CGI. But other than that, other than stuff that has to be CGI, like big armies and things mm-hmm. like that, it's all physical. It's either models or they actually got you know built the goddamn thing. Like, yeah. Hobbiton? Hobbiton's real. You can go visit Hobbiton. It's in Matamata, New okay. Zealand. They built the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And all of these things, you know, they built... The, the the how the Golden Hall in Rohan, all of these things, Minas Tirith, min- they obviously did not build, but there's a model of that that they shot. Yeah, and they it's... use
1: a lot of scale models. That yeah, are and really, s- really cool to look at.
0: So there's there's no effect in Lord of the Rings that pulls you out of the movie, which all of its contemporaries, which were overusing CGI at the time, you cannot go watch a movie from 2001 to 2003 and not wince once or twice at bad CGI. I mean,
1: you can't watch a movie today without wincing once yeah. or twice
0: at bad CGI. I mean, even all the orcs, the temptation must have been there to be like, okay, that's a lot of makeup, we can't do that, let's just CGI them. We we can't do that for, like, the 50 dudes who are in this scene.
1: It's like, fuck it, we're going to do it.
0: And as I understand it, the Hobbit is going to be using substantially more CGI. The goblins will be real people, but they will have CGI elements grafted onto them. And I think we're at a place in effects where that's probably acceptable at this point. Yeah. And I also don't expect... Peter Jackson has never over-relied on CGI to us, you know, the degree that some filmmakers do. Yeah. So it'll be fine. But it's just like... They, they're very special films to me because while they were made in sort of our modern era, they were made in such a way that they look timeless.
1: Yeah, and they they took a lot of values from older ways of making films. And yes. That's, I think that really helps you get absorbed into it because it has such as. Physical reality to
0: it because they yeah. use
1: so much practical effects.
0: Yep, works very very well. So that's sort of a general sense. But let's let's sort of go back memories of these films. Came out December two thousand one. Yeah, we would have. I would have been in third grade. You would have been in third grade. We didn't know yeah. each other back then. Yeah, no. But what are your memories of seeing Fellowship for the first time? I just remember it being really really awesome. Yeah, I mean that's
1: just basically my memories of all the films is that they were some of the first films I watched in the theater that were like, this is really, really goddamn cool. This is, like, this is one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen, watching yeah. those movies. And I know, and it's, I really like The Lord of the Rings too, because it's sort of, one of the things that my brother and I share in common a lot, is that we both really, really love both, like, the universe, because we listen to the audiobooks together on the trips, but then we also love the film so much. And it's one of the things that my brother's actually really nerdy about, is The Lord of the Rings, so that's kind of Fun. Where I mean, we have, we got the theatrical editions of all the movies when they came out on DVD. Even knowing that the extended edition cuts were going to come oh, out, of and we Everyone get those too. Yeah. So it's like well, if we have to watch it now, we can't wait the extra, like, six months until they come out with the extended cuts, because we have to watch it again. Right. it's coming out on DVD, so. Well, it's, pathet-
0: it's even more pathetic than that, though, because the theatrical cuts came out on DVD in August, and then the extended would come out in November. It was only oh, a two-month geez. wait. And I remember it was the same with my family, where we, theatrical cuts came out, and initially, my dad and I, we thought, all right, we, we don't need this, we're going to wait for the extended, and I think we made it, like, two weeks past the time the DVD came out, and then we went down to Blockbuster and bought it. Yeah. And it was just like, we have to have it. And and we watched it several times, probably before the extended came out. And then we got that. And we're like, oh, this is so much better. Yeah, it's like we can throw the theatrical cut away because we've got the extended editions now. Those are yeah. amazing. But thank you, theatrical DVD, for tiding us over. Yeah. So. Uh, but no, my my memory of seeing it for the first time, I just there was so much hype around it. And and not not with people I knew because other kids my age weren't really interested in it. I, I don't recall in my at least in my elementary school in third grade people did after Fellowship came out but sort of beforehand. No one of that age range was reading Lord of the Rings so they didn't know it. I'd read it and, my, and it was really just my dad and I because my little brother was way too young to get into it at that point and I think the first one he saw theatrically was probably Two Towers. But in any case, uh, so I you know went and, we went and saw Fellowship opening night we were really excited. Um my dad and I always had a joke, like, recurring through time of, like, weird things they do on movie tickets, like, where they have to abbreviate the title, is that it just said on the movie ticket for Fellowship of the Ring, Fellowship of Ring. <laughs> we always liked that, so.
1: Well, I, I, like, why don't you just do the L-O-T-R, F-O-T-R? Like, why don't right. you just use the... They do that
0: now, but it was funny. Loader, floater. Yeah. Fellowship of Ring and uh you know we it's just it was i just will never forget that night of seeing lord of the rings for the first time i can picture where we were sitting how i viewed the screen what the movie looked like it was because that moment i've always said was my cinematic awakening there are a lot of movies that contributed to my love of movies that was the movie that made me fall in love with movies that was the point of no return i saw fellowship of the ring and that was it i was that that was what i was going to do the rest of my life yeah. was watch movies <laughs> because that was another level. Like, I'd never seen anything that did that much with the power of film, mm-hmm. that took you on that kind of journey, and had that kind of emotional and visual impact. And, of course, I've seen many movies now, but in many ways I don't feel any different. I still feel like nothing has quite taken me on a journey just using cinema, like Lord of the Rings did. Well, you, my and, friend, have
1: never watched The Seventh Voyage of Sin Right.
0: So there's, there's still that. I know. But anyway, I you know Fellowship of the Ring is also unique as the movie I can pinpoint as being the film I've watched most of my life, because I I can pinpoint exactly at least like twelve different times I've seen it, mm-hmm. and then there's gotta be countless other times. Yeah. So I've seen that movie a fuck ton. I think I saw it like four times in theaters, and again and again it was just it was you know yeah. You watched it a lot. Even though it's it's three hours, sure doesn't none of them feel their length. Yeah, no, me. I agree. And even if they start to, they start to in good ways.
1: Yeah, no, like they do, they do feel like long movies, but because they take place over a long period of time, so you sort of as the viewer experience that as well. Yeah, I think that's it's a good way to experience time. It's not like yeah. oh, this is taking forever. It's like this is taking forever. Like this is
0: an it's experience, cool. right? Yeah, this is a journey. Yeah, it's like Frodo's going through some shit.
1: Yeah, that's no. Too
0: bad. Um, no, but I and then I remember seeing obviously Two Towers. It was sort of a similar experience, but. Uh, Two Towers was an interesting one because that was the first major movie to play at a theater that's near us called the Colorado Mills. Um, it was a new United Artists Theater. It's at our sort of big mall, and it's sort of the main theater in the Golden Lakewood area, Yeah. Um, along with Denver West, which is right across the way from it. And Fellowship had played at Denver West, and... Colorado Mills had literally just opened for two towers and so I remember we went to see two towers opening night and there was hardly anyone in the theater because no one knew that theater was there <laughs> and it was really weird because then we saw Return of the King there the next year and it was completely packed yeah I mean this this is something that's changed and I don't know if it's because audiences are just smaller for movies now or that there are so many more theaters that it's more diffuse movies used to sell out. Yeah, at Lord of the Rings, you had to get your ticket early. This was a thing. You had to get your ticket early. Get there a couple hours, even if you weren't doing midnight. I mean, midnight was not even a big thing yet. Yeah, but you just you I'm went to see it and
1: trying to think what I think. Revenge of the Sith was the last movie I ever had to stand in line for. Right. I mean, I tend not to try to go to movies when they come out anymore, anyways, because and you
0: know,
1: I I, I'm a I suckers have... game. But I think honestly, I think it wouldn't be a problem now. Like that's one of the reasons why I don't try to anymore is because I went to Revenge of the Sith when it came out and was like, well. It's like, I don't like standing lines for movies. It's like, I could just wait tomorrow and I'd be totally fine.
0: Right. And, I mean, I I guess I have sort of a biased view because I haven't seen a movie on its opening day in a long time. I just go to the press screenings, but... I still, I I go to midnight screenings every once in a while, and those are sort of similar to that, but back in the day, the 7 p.m. screening, that was what midnight is like now, Mm -hmm. and it's very different now. I feel like you could, when The Hobbit comes out on December 14th, you could probably go to any theater in your town at, at like, 6.30, buy a ticket, and maybe you won't get the best seat in the house, but you'll probably sit near where you want to sit. Yeah. That's kind of a weird thing, but it's just like, things have changed. Yeah. And The Hobbit's still going to make a, you know, shit ton of money. Yeah. So... In any case, any other sort of memories of seeing these films initially?
1: Again, I just remember them being awesome. I mean, yeah. I remember that period of my life just sort of being consumed by Lord of the Rings. I mean, my life is still kind of consumed, consumed. by Lord of the Rings. But yeah. I mean, it's also because there's all, like, the video games that came
0: out. I was going to ask you about like, that. Which video games did you play? Because I played, I played... I played a lot of oh, them. Oh, yeah. I played maybe most of them. I played some that are
1: based just on the books. I right. Played, there's the Fellowship of the Ring PC game that's based on the books. It's terrible that I played. There's the Game Boy game that's based on the book. That's also terrible that I played. The Game
0: Boy Advance Fellowship by Black Games?
1: Yeah. That's, I, it's like a, sort of a turn-based RPG type yeah, thing. It's conf- fucking terrible. It's
0: terrible. Can I confess something? Sure. I right. gave it away a couple of years ago, and I just bought it again on eBay.
1: Why the fuck did you buy that goddamn game? It was that 99 game, cents. God, that game
0: fucked me so many times. I know. And I, I started playing it again, and I remembered why I got rid of it. It is maybe the worst. It's, <laughs> one of the worst games i ever played. It,
1: it's probably... It's been so long since I've played it, but I remember... I remember that was one of the times... That was like the... I an experience with that game that sort of made me, like, wary of how I save. Like, I'm so obsessive about archiving saves nowadays because of that game fucked me over. Where there's one point... I don't even remember how it happened, but there was just one point where basically I, I remember... It was before you go to Weathertop, but it's like... You've been playing with the Hobbits for almost the entire time. Because, again, it's based on the game... Or on the books. So it goes through, like, all the shit that happens in the books. So you... It's just one of those really frustrating experiences where you're like, man, I just want to get fucking Strider. Can I just get Strider? I am so sick. All four of... I have a party of four people, and they're all hobbits, and they all fucking suck. They get killed. It's like the game is balanced for you to have Strider and Gandalf and Legolas and Gimli, but you don't have any of those guys, so you only have a hobbit. So it's like, I'm getting killed by everything. I finally get Strider, and I I think I I got in a fight with a troll, and there was like a save point right before you get in a fight with a troll, and I think I like my characters got poisoned or something like that. But basically, what, my save was such that I only had this one save, and I would die. I would just die immediately after the save. So it was like... <laughs> I can't play this game anymore. Like, I I went through, like, the bulk of the game getting to fucking... Get, I got fucking Strider. Finally, I got Strider. And he only has a broken sword. This is, like... That also made me realize how fucking dumb it is that Strider walks around with the shards of Narsil. It's like, you've got half a sword, dude. You can't... You're not gonna kill anybody with that. Get a real fucking two-handed sword. But yeah, after that. And then, yeah. you know, then years later, Assassin's Creed Revelations, the same goddamn thing. Saves keep on fucking me. Developers need to I'm sorry Sean. Developers need to get behind that at some point and like yeah. archive saves in games automatically that they don't keep on like have like three to five saves archived you don't need to overwrite every goddamn autosave every single time it's not fucking 2001 anymore we can we can handle the save thing now
0: but thank God the Lord of the Rings game license transferred to EA from whoever yeah. the hell had it before, because <laughs> the Two Towers was sort of the first big Lord of the Rings game. Think it was awesome. It's good. I yeah. I had I believe I played the PS2 version once. So I, the game, I, the I had, had the game. game, game Advan, I had the Game Boy, and I had the Advance version oh, also. I didn't play the uh,
1: handheld versions. past okay. that. I only got the console yeah. versions. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, That's I, so I actually so hard
1: about that Fellowship of the Ring game. I never touched no. another handheld Lord of the Rings. I game. I know the handheld world
0: I, I was playing mostly handhelds at this time in my life, so I actually knew the GBA versions better. And from my standpoint, those were really fun. And they were not turn-based. It was just you had your character. And like, I think you, would get, you had a party, but you could kind of cycle through which one you would be playing at the moment. Mm-hmm. And they had certain weapons, and you would just go through areas, and there were orcs and things to clear out. And they were, it was good graphics for the GBA. They were fun.
1: Yeah, no, I played the... Because they, EA released console versions for Two Towers and Return of the King. You got GameCube Two Towers, which that's a really fun game. Where you basically play as Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli is just sort of like a standard hack and slash, but it's one of the few. It's not like it's a great game, but it really takes advantage of the license, and it just like you know, it's a good quality hack and slash type game. And then the Return of the King version came out, and that's a really fun game. That's especially on co-op. You, I see you have uh, uh, Yeah, I've game got game. it over there on our on a game shelf. That's that's a. I, I'll, I'll still pull that out every now and then and play it, because it, you get to play as Gandalf, then there's also a section where you play as Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and then there's also a section where you play as Frodo and Sam, and sort of, like, branches off into those few stories. But the best part, I love this game, because the, how you play the game is basically, you know, it's, you, if you've got, like, light attack, strong attack, just sort of basic combos, but you level up your characters by getting experience, and, like, the more combos you get, you get this sort of, like, combo meter that'll rise, so if you You know, if you do a lot of combos on enemies in quick succession, you'll go into this thing called perfect mode, where your damage is, like, doubled, and you will get, like, maybe, like, three times experience for every kill. So you really want to get into perfect mode so that you can level up your characters faster. And they have this one move that you can unlock called Orc Bane. And there's, like, a different version of that for all the different types of enemies. And it's basically you block an attack from an orc and then press the right trigger, and it kills them, and you instantly go into perfect mode. So there's this one level of the game where you're storming. You're going to uh, you're going to Minas Tirith. It's like it's like right before you go to Pelennor's Field, and you have to go past this gate. And there's this area right in front of the gate where like like hundreds of enemies spawn. It not at all at the same time, but they like keep on coming in waves. And every time, I think the mission is called Southern Gate. And every time I get to that mission, I'm like, I'm going to be playing this mission for the next fucking hour because I'm going to kill all of these guys, and I'm just going to... Like, I just developed this strategy where you'd use Orc Bane on the Orcs, because you aren't high-level enough to get Urukai Bane to use it on the Urukai. So you use that on the Orcs, get Perfect Mode, go kill every Urukai you can find until Perfect Mode runs out, and then get Orc, use Orc Bane again, and do that until you kill everybody, and you can basically get to level 10 in that one level. It's so much... Bu- it's like, it's so much fun because it feels like you're not supposed to do it, because the enemies keep on coming, but they eventually stop. And it's this great feeling where it's like... I just slaughtered hundreds of fucking dudes. I, like, killed their entire army just standing here blocking orcs until I got perfect mode and then killing all those motherfuckers. That's and it's awesome. one of those It's just one of those moments in games where it's like you figure that out and you're like, I'm going to be doing this for the next hour of my life and it's going to be great cause now I'm completely overleveled for the rest of the game.
0: i, I got to go back and play these games someday because they were a lot of fun. Uh, but what Dude, I one used, thing I... We should play co-op on Return of the King, because they're really good co-op games. Oh, I forgot I had that. We should totally do that when yeah. this podcast is over. In any case, I wanted to just point out, I've always thought this, the cover art for the Two Towers video game is my favorite game cover art of all time. I don't know why. I can't... It's just... It, look it up. It's just... It's blue, and it's on the top, it's Aragorn, Legos, and Gimli in action poses. It's got the Lord of the Rings, you know, gold fuck-off font in the middle. Yeah. It's awesome. And man, I just... i It's so cool looking. And the the blue on it, I don't know what it is. I've always loved that cover.
1: Yeah, no, that's... I agree. That's really great. I never yeah. i never took note of that before, but I do... There's something interesting about it all being blue. Yeah.
0: Well, because that's... Helms... That's probably the most visually dynamic part of the films for me is yeah. Helms Deep. But man, it's just it's a good representation of that. Yeah. There's...
1: Then there's another game I got. This I think this might be the last Lord of the Rings game I got because they don't make that many anymore. There's no. like then Lord of the Rings: War in the North game that came out that I haven't played. That's on the 360. That kind of got middling reviews. But the there was one that came out after the Return of the King game called Lord of the Rings: of The Third Age, and it's sort of a turn-based Final Fantasy-ish type game. Like the, the it's basically a Final Fantasy combat system. But you play as it's the one like this game's not terrible. But the really fucking dumb thing about it is that you you don't play as the Fellowship. You play as these dudes who are like right behind the Fellowship every single step of the way. So it's like you play as not Aragorn. It's like Barrow Thor or something like that. That's he's, too he's bad. A, he's a Gondor swordsman. He's, he stumbles across not Arwen, who's like this elf and she's a spellcaster. Then you. There's actually, you get another not-Aragorn, who's a Dunedain ranger. Then you get not-Gimli. You get not-Eowyn, uh, who's, like, this Rohan guy. There's, like, you get, like, all these characters who are not characters in the movies, but are clearly basically just characters from the movies. And you get them in your party. And But the fucking stupid thing about it is that you're always right behind where the fellowship is. And it's just this really dumb way to make a game, because it's just, like... Okay, we're in Rohan. It's like I heard Aragorn's right over there. Let's. We have to. I forget why you. I think you might be trying to get the ring from Frodo to bring back to Gondor or something like, like that. I don't even remember why the fuck you're following the fellowship around. But you're always fellowship following the fellowship around. It's like you're going into Moria and it's like, oh, th- they're right over there. They're on the bridge of Khazad Dûm. It's like we can see them. Oh, Gandalf just fell. Oh, they're gone. I guess we have to find a way around this. I think you even fight. I don't know how... I'm pretty sure you fight the fucking Balrog. <laughs> what the fuck? I, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Do you, like, jump down the pit with Gandalf? Did you, you might. You know, you might end up fighting with Gandalf against him because there's a lot of parts in the game where you end up fighting with, like, Aragorn or Legolas, and they're obviously, like, they're really fucking badass, and all of your guys are like, it's like, I'm level 5, I do 25 damage every time I do normal attack. Then Aragorn's like, I'm going to use Wrath of Giliath and get, like, a 5-hit combo that does 1,000 damage. It's like, well, why the fuck am I even here? I just like, I got this rusty fucking sword and some leather boots. And Aragorn's here with the fucking Andriel, the Flame of the West, and he just nuked all the enemies on the goddamn screen.
0: That would be like if Halo 4, if you played as last game.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's basically like that. It's just like, it's like, oh, the Master Chief's right over there. It's like, I'm going to go get, oh, okay, Master Chief's gone. I guess I have to mop up after him because they didn't kill every single god goblin in the Mines of Moria. And you basically do that all throughout the game. It's like you're on Pellinor Fields and it's like, Legolas just killed that Mumakill. Oh, but not everybody on the Mumakill dead. I guess I go better go kill those guys. It's like... Oh god! And then the other really shitty part about the game is that they didn't get a lot of the voice actors back, which oh, is weird because bad. a lot of the because they got basically everyone to do voices for the Return of the King game because that's one of the fun things about that game is you unlock these little videos of interviews of like Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan talking about like them doing voice work for Marion Pippin, like Elijah Wood and Sean Astin talk about it, and Ian McKellen has an interview on there too, and it was really fun to watch. It's like third age, just like no, they didn't get any of those guys back, so so you'll have a scene where it's like you know, <laughs> Bear Thor walks into. The like the, It's like the scene in Two Towers in Helm's Deep... Where Aragorn and Legolas are arguing... And Legolas is like... These guys have seen Too Few Winters... And stuff like that... And it's like... It, but Aragorn's like... They need to fight! Or whatever... And you walk into that scene... And it's just like... It's so obvious that the audio is just ripped from the movies... So it's like... Oh god... And it's like this... Just immediately takes me out of the game... And then, and then also they'll just... Pull lines... Where they don't belong... Like you'll be in a fight and then all of a sudden that like Aragorn will say some line from the movie that's like from like Fellowship of the Ring and I'm in Return of the King right now it's like I know, I've watched the movies enough that I know where these lines come from, and as you pull them out from the wrong places, it seems so fucking out of place.
0: So that's the third age game? Yeah,
1: that's the third age. Okay. Then, although, I will say, one of the other kind of, the, one of the, the best part of the game, honestly, is after you sort of beat a section, like, you know, you beat the Rivendell section, then you get a, they, it unlocks this mode where you can play through a bunch of battles from that section from the point of view of the enemies, so you can play as, like, the orcs and stuff like that in these turn-based battles. And that's the most fun, because eventually you'll, you know, you get to play as a cave troll, or then you get to play as the Balrog in one section, and that's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And But the best part of that is that when you do those, it feels like, you because you unlock them as you beat the sections, but it feels like you're supposed to play those after you've beaten the game, because when you do that, it unlocks these really good weapons, so it's like... Once you play as the Balrog, I remember you unlock a sword for your main dude, Barathor, that's ridiculously powerful. It's, like, one of the most powerful swords in the game. You don't get another sword until that's better, until you get, like, the Return of the King section. So you go through the entire two towers using this, like, really badass sword you unlock from that section. So it's like, okay, I'm in another fight with, like, five orcs. I can just kill them all, basically, in one turn because my guy is so goddamn powerful because I got the sword. So it's like, even that, like, the combat system was just kind of broken. It was this really, really dumb game that was... I played a lot of, because it's really long, but it's just like, every step of the way, I was like, why am I still playing this game? I know everything that happens. None of these characters are interesting, because they're just copy and pasted versions of characters from the movies. Yeah. It's like, why the fuck am I still playing this goddamn game?
0: Well, anyway, we got pretty off track with our video game discussion, so, want uh, no, to get back to They were Lord of the Rings video games, they're, and they're all no. movie licensed, Right, the no, it's fine. Yeah. But, no, that was, it definitely defined sort of the period, that if you were watching the movies, you had things like the games that were yeah. really fun. And I'm still waiting for someone to kind of come out and make, like, the ultimate Lord of the Rings games, because I think it could be done really easily, but it'd be, well, not easily. Yeah, done. I wouldn't say, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a game waiting to be made, but
1: right. it's going to take a lot of effort to make it. I know.
0: I've yeah. always thought, like, it would be neat if Bethesda did, like, a Skyrim-esque thing for Lord of the Rings, where they just build Middle-Earth, and the main quest line would be the Lord of the Rings, but you could just explore Middle-Earth. It'd be fun.
1: Well, I mean, actually, one of the interesting <laughs> things is that EA still has, as far as I'm aware, EA still has licensed Lord of the Rings games. I think that War for the North was EA licensed, and yeah. EA owns BioWare, so... Oh, BioWare a, could... Be, a, yeah. BioWare, EA, I mean, BioWare made Dragon Age Origins, like, three or four years ago, and that was an awesome middle, like... Yeah fantasy world-esque RPG, by which we should make a fucking Lord of the Rings RPG.
0: That'd be Cause, great.
1: Cause the, and one of the things that, like, I kind of want to play War in the North, but I know it's not a good game just based on all the stuff I've seen of it, but it's like, I like the idea that it's like, you don't necessarily need to play as the main characters, and you don't also necessarily need to be playing as people who are, like, five steps behind the main characters, because there's so much shit going on in the Lord of the Rings universe at the time. Yeah. It's just like... Just let me interact with that stuff. Like, you can make another story set in Lord of the Rings universe around the same period and still have it be really interesting. Yeah. They just choose not to do that or fail in doing it.
0: Right. In any case, you want to talk about the movies now? Sure, why not? It's... It's right. been long enough. It has. So let's talk about The Fellowship of the Ring, movie one, from 2001. Yes. And uh, just just in terms of just how we're talking about these movies, I, you should probably it up front, we'll be talking about the extended cuts. Yeah, because I know. can't we'll remember what's in the theatrical compared to the extended. Like, I don't remember what scenes
1: are in the extended that weren't in the theatrical. Because I've, ever since I got the extended cuts, I've watched those versions at least, like, like within like that thing where it's like I'll have a week session where I'll just watch all the movies. I've done that at least four times that I can remember with yeah. the extended. So
0: no, I've I always watched the extended. I've seen the theatrical versions once since they first came out on DVD, and that yeah, was it's
1: probably about the same for me when they
0: first came out on Blu-ray. I got the theatrical cuts. I only watched them like once or twice, so I'm a little more familiar. But even then, I can't remember all of it. It's. There's, the extended versions are the movies at this point.
1: Yeah, for me, especially Fellowship and Two Towers. The Return of the King, I could kind of remember yeah. some scenes. Like, I can remember the Saruman scene wasn't in there in the mouth of Sauron, but... There's, there's like, so, really
0: awkward cuts around
1: them. Yeah, <laughs> there's, but there's so many, like, just little moments that, it's like, that really kind of fill out those movies for me that yeah. the actual cuts don't have. I exactly. vaguely recall they don't have.
0: So, in any case, Fellowship of the Ring... Let's talk about it. What's I guess just up front, sort of what's your overall impression of this one as its own movie?
1: This I think Fellowship's probably my favorite as it like just its own movie because I think it deals with the characters almost entirely. There's I mean and when it does do the action, I really like the action. Like I really like Moria. I really like the fight at the end of like Amon inn yeah, where the where Aragorn. i it's like I just love that shot of Amon in where Frodo runs off and then Aragorn sort of turns to the camera and like puts the sword up in front of his face and then like swings it and then starts killing the Urkai. It's one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's, it's a, great. It's just such a great ramp up to the battle. It is. But I think
0: that's that's where fellowship is my favorite too, is that not only does it have all sort of the beginning stuff with Bilbo and the Shire, which is really compelling to me, mm-hmm. but also it's the Fellowship in action altogether. and yeah. that's what's great about it, and especially, I, I think for me, the emotional heft of the last half hour of Fellowship is some of the greatest stuff in the series, because yeah, you don't just have Boromir dying, but you have the Fellowship being splintered and sort of this sense of hopelessness, but the thrust of the story is about hope, and I, it's just like, that's what The Lord of the Rings is to me. Yeah. And it does it so well. I mean, all the stuff at the end, like that scene where Aragorn, you know, is clasping Frodo's hand and saying, I would have gone with you to the mouths of, you know, more of Mount Doom. Yeah. I would have gone with you to the very end. And just that sense of melancholy of, we, we have to go separate ways now. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's so yeah. Lovely. Yeah, there's
1: so... Well, I, I think the reason why The is my favorite is because it deals with sort of the smaller scale stuff. Like, the action scenes are smaller scale. The character stuff is smaller scale. It's like, it feels a lot more focused because it's the beginning and nothing like... And everything doesn't splinter off and you have... And I've, I mean, not saying the other movies are bad by any stretch of imagination, but this is sort of the section of the story I like the most.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it is hard to differentiate, though. I mean, on other days of the week, I sometimes think Two Towers is my favorite because it's got fucking Helm's Deep. Yeah. And you can't really beat Helm's Deep. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, lot of good things. Yeah. So. Alright, so, Fellowship of the Ring. Do we want to sort of talk about the story as adaptation? Because Fellowship is yeah, that's... probably the most changed.
1: Yeah, because they, they cut a lot of stuff out of Fellowship. Right. I mean, yeah. people
0: sort of cite Two Towers as having the biggest changes because of the stuff with Faramir. But that's pretty minor in the grand scheme of yeah, things.
1: Yeah, because for, uh, people always bring up the Faramir stuff, and I'm like... You know, Faramir's not that big... Like, he's not this,
0: like, really, really important character. They do change him, but... But they change him to get back to the original. It's sort of like the changes with Aragorn, where Aragorn's very different, but he ends up in the same place. Yeah, yeah,
1: Faramir, like, he starts out as his total dick, like, but he doesn't in the book... But if Faramir kind of the or sort of ends up in the same place that he is in the book by the end, and I and one of the reasons why I don't care that they changed Faramir is because I really like the movie version of Faramir, I especially because there's the one, I think it's in the Two Towers extended edition where there's a scene with him in Boromir at Osgiliath before he Boromir leaves, and yeah. it's like you sort of like fill out the Denethor Faramir Boromir like family. It's a great scene. It's like it's I like can't believe they cut that scene. Hey, I don't like, want
0: to makes those characters. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's the most important scene in any of the extended cuts to me, because without yeah. it, the Two Towers actually, I will say, is a pretty flawed movie in its theatrical version, because yeah. Faramir makes no fucking sense in the mm-hmm. theatrical cut, but when you add that and a couple other moments in, in the extended, he's one of the most dynamic characters in the trilogy.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely, and then also that scene just makes Bormir forming, me, whereas yeah. like, because now you, it's the first time you get to see Bormir not kind of just being a dick, yeah. like, his because Boromir, Boromir's kind of a dick in the books, too, He's, he tries to take the ring from Frodo and all that stuff, and he's but you understand why he's doing that a lot more when you see that perspective of what Gondor is going through. Yeah, it's like love that scene.
0: I love it too. But anyway, that's I yeah, we it. got totally
1: Jesus. We we. This is, this is, like, the problem that we I knew we were going to run into with this podcast. It's like, there's no way we're going to be able to focus this discussion because there's so much stuff.
0: So much great stuff. In, in any case, Fellowship of the Ring, the big change is really... The second half of Fellowship is pretty much Book 2 of Lord of the Rings. It's very close. Yeah. But Book 1... Book 1 is basically sort of a more adult version of The Hobbit, I would say, in, in the Lord of the Rings, in book form. It's just yeah. a journey... And it's, it's about you know, getting there. It doesn't have to back again at that point, but it's just the there and sort of the, the very much methodical steps of the journey. It goes into a lot more detail than The Hobbit, but it's got mm-hmm. kind of that same tone because you're with just Hobbits for a while. Yeah. You eventually add Strider in, but it's pretty late in that section. Yeah. And it's just them getting to Rivendell, mm-hmm. and and a larger part, them getting to because it takes them a long time to get to Bree. Fuck yeah, no. It's... And basically, that's what they change, is that the big thing is that in the book, A, there's a big gap of time between when, like, Bilbo leaves and then Frodo leaves. Frodo winds up buying yeah. a house in Buckland.
1: Yeah, there's the, I, there's always the part that I forget when I, like, look at The Lord of the Rings as the books again, where it's like,
0: god damn, like, yeah, it
1: was, like, years
0: after Bilbo left before Frodo goes anywhere. I yeah.
1: always forget that part, because right. it always
0: seems kind of weird. And and so they have all that. They have their adventures with Farmer Maggot and Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites, which is something I always forget, is the Barrow Whites. I, I always
1: like the Barrow Whites. It's really it's good. Like, yeah. It's just,
0: it's like, because it's it doesn't have anything to do with anything else ever. Yeah,
1: but it's, it's how they get their daggers. Right. Like the, instead of uh, Strider just kind of coming up, it's like, I just I just happen to have a bunch of hobbit-sized swords for
0: you guys. Yes, I feel like Strider probably carries around a lot of weapons with him. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, they cut most of that stuff out. There's a reference to Farmer Maggot. There's really no, no references to Tom Bombadil. Um, although, as Philippa Boyan's mm-hmm. notes in the special features... You can make the logical leap that because of the way it, the, the movie is edited with montage in that section, they could have stopped at Tom Bombadil's. Who knows? Yeah. They could have been spent like three months at Tom Bombadil's. We just don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's sort of weird. There was outcry at the time for all the stuff being cut. And even my dad, because he'd spent his whole life reading Lord of the Rings, was a little, not perturbed, but he was, like, he was kind of put off. Like it's, It was weird to him. Yeah. Because he just knew that story so well. But to me, it's, like, it's so clear that we have yeah. killed the movie. Like, I was just, like, every time it... Because it still comes up whenever
1: I, like, see some of these discussions online that, like, people are, like, still sore the Tom Bombadil got cut. I'm, like, dude, when I, like, listen to those audio books with the Tom Bombadil stuff, like, I was a kid. I was, like, this, like, this doesn't need to be here. Like, this... I mean, I like the Tom Bombadil stuff. I like that section, and it works a lot better as, in a book because, again, it sort of gives you a sense of the journey which is one of the really fun things about the Lord of the Rings books, in a fucking movie, that would be terrible! That's, that's like, the one thing that I can't believe that people want in, a, in like, the Lord of the Rings, at least the Peter Jackson version of the other movies. Like, I yeah. could see if you made, like, an HBO miniseries, it's like, sure, fuck it, we can do Tom Bombadil, but it's... No, that would not have been... Like, that would have made that movie so fucking slow. It would have made it, like, an hour longer. Yeah, and... It's, it's and just, the whole thing is I a, don't know if it's just me. So I don't want to necessarily see some like middle-aged man running around the forest singing about him being Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Yeah. Fucking willows and shit like that. I don't care that much.
0: No, I totally agree, and... The thing for me is that the first hour of Fellowship is fantastic because it's so well-paced. Yeah, it's very it. intense. Once Bilbo leaves and Gandalf starts uncovering secrets about the ring, mm-hmm. it's pretty non-stop until you get to when Frodo is... Not even when Frodo is stabbed, until you get to Rivendell. Yeah. It's sort of this relentless trek, and it's, that sense of pace is great, but that means they have to compress the time scale, so... Frodo has to leave immediately. He has to just run out of his house. He mm-hmm. has to, you know, just run to Bree with his friends. He has to escape the, the Nazgul and, mm-hmm. and all these things and and get to Bree. And then when you get to Bree, he meets Strider and then they're off again. And then just a lot of sort of really fast-paced, still getting the broad strokes of the story in there and still doing a lot of good character work, establishing the four hobbits and then Strider. But it's again, it's about... Getting them there in sort of an intense fashion, yeah. and that's still ninety minutes of the finished film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's half the movie, and so can you imagine? And they, and it's half the movie, and it's probably a fourth of what's in that section of the book. Yeah. If they did all that, that would be like eight movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, yeah, I don't necessarily want to see the whole section of Frodo just hitting around town doing nothing. Like right. that's always when when it played the the games based on the books. It's just like leave the fucking Shire! Jesus Christ, like, there's nothing... Like, even when you're making the game, they just, like, would spend forever in the game and the fucking Shire. It's just a leaf. I don't want to spend five hours in the goddamn Shire watching Frodo futz around complaining about Sackville Bagginses. That's not the exciting part of Lord of the Rings. I don't know why you put that in the game. I mean, thank God they cut it out of the fucking movie because it wouldn't work in that format at all. It no. would have been, been fucking awful.
0: It would have been terrible. But like we said, once you get to Rivendell, then the well, then this movie at least pretty much just becomes but the you book.
1: You forgot the most tragic change of all. The other one that comes up all the fucking
0: time that I don't get. I think
1: they I... they they changed Glorfindel to Arwen. How could they do that? Glorfindel was so goddamn important. How could they change it to another character that's actually important to the overall arc of the story and really significant to Aragorn personally as a character? How could they take out Glorfindel and put in Arwen, who everybody loves? Glorfindel's so
0: cool. <laughs> God, I fucking... I can't stand people with their Glorfindel shit. I, I, I totally get it. And what's funny to me is that I'm so removed from that because I think what they did with Arwen in this series was brilliant.
1: Yeah, no, I really like... I, liked, I think the biggest changes they made that are sort of really significant is the stuff they did with Aragorn, Aragorn and Arwen. But then and I really like it. Yeah, I think it adds it adds a nice strong character thrust throughout the movies, and gives you a strong character arc that works really well
0: for a movie. And it's not even. Yes, they change where she comes in, but they just took the broad strokes from the appendices, and they just yeah. they, they put it back into the story, because the whole idea is that, in, in sort of the history of, of the, the fictional history of Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings text is the Red Book of Westmarch, and then the appendices are supplementary works, and the story of Aragorn and Arwen, Frodo did not know when he wrote in the Red Book of Westmarch, mm-hmm. so you get that out, but the movies are just the story, so they put that stuff back in, and Putting Arwen in there for Glorfindel, that probably was not an obvious change. So I think that was kind of genius that yes, they thought of it.
1: I agree. Because the, it would, like, if Glorfindel had been there, it'd just be like, I don't know who this guy is. This guy's in the court. and just going to disappear. This guy's not significant.
0: But then that, by putting her there, it means that by the time you get to Rivendell, we already know and like her and are invested in her and are invested in her and Aragorn.
1: Yeah, and you add that
0: nice it's, subplot throughout the yeah. movie
1: that gives you something to go back to. That sort of like can change the pacing up when you just like yeah. let's like have something with Aragorn and Arwen, and let's like sort of develop that a little bit more.
0: It's uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a really smart move, and it uh, it kills like eight birds with one stone. Is yeah. the swap for Ar- Arwen for Glorfindel? Because as you said. Glorfindel, whatever. If you like him in the book, that's fine, but at most he would be just a one off character in the movies. Yeah, he's a exactly. one off character in the books.
1: Yeah, like in the Lord of the Rings animated version, like the Ralph Bakshi film, they have Glorfindel there. He's like, he's there for that scene. It's yeah. like, okay, bye. Like, they, I don't remember how this goes down. I think this goes down this way in the book, too, but it's like Glorfindel isn't even on the horse with Frodo. Like, I think he gets off like has the, Frodo, the horse go off with Frodo across yeah. the river to Rivendell. This is like, Glorfindel isn't even there for most of it. He's like, it's like, hey, what's up, Aragorn? What's up, Glorfindel? We need to get this dude over to Rivendell. Can you help him along? Sure. Smacks the horse butt before he leaves. It's like, bye, Glorfindel. Yeah. Never gonna see your ass again. But apparently he's so critically important that people decry his missing from the movies all the fucking time on the internet. and drives me insane.
0: All right. Fucking Glorfindel. After that, once, once they get to Rivendell, which is technically actually the end of book one of Fellowship of the Ring... Um, this is sort of the midway point of the movie after Council of Elrond is when the intermission happens in the film. And so Where are we going? Yeah, great line. In any case, so it really just becomes pretty much a pretty close adaptation of the book from there. Council of Elrond obviously is cut down because that's a long part of the book.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's, it's cut down, but it's still some really critical information like in the prologue scene and right. stuff like that. So. so it's still all there. The thrust of the scene is still there. Yeah. Same as the thrust of the mini-meetings chapter that he meets Bilbo and he gets Sting and he gets the... Um, Mithril. Yep. It's awesome. yeah. So Mithril, which...
1: For hard as dragon scale.
0: Mithril always makes me think of Final Fantasy, and then when I'm playing Final Fantasy, it always makes me think of Lord of the Rings.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of the same way, and this always drives me insane in Final Fantasy. At least the older Final Fantasy games are spelled with a Y. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's weird. not spelled with a fucking Y. What are you people talking about? I always wonder what, if, like, why that is. I, just, I don't get the sense that in Japan, Lord of the Rings is like a thing. I've never... Got that sense from anything other than right. Final Fantasy, so I don't know if they like localized that to be Mithril or what. But yeah, it's always knows? Fucking weird. It's always weird when I find Adamantium sometimes in fantasy games.
0: It's like, really? Yeah, Adamantium. no, that ha- that happens sometimes. It's like, what the fuck is this doing here? This Wolverine
1: around the corner? Like, what?
0: The I f- feel like the localization guy must just be some really like
1: <laughs> like d- really nerd. super nerdy. It's yeah. like I'm just going to come up. It's like you're going to find some unobtainium next. It's like you
0: got an unobtainium chainmail suit. <laughs> annoying white guy to stop you from using it. Yeah. In any case... Um, we keep on getting fucking off track. Yeah. So, again, the Council of Elrond scene, really good sort of brief version of that scene. Yep. And then from there, I mean, it's, it's again, it's all the broad strokes. The crows that come in, the pass of Karadras. Yeah. The only big thing they cut from this section, I would say, is the Warwick attack, but they actually move that into two towers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, rather effectively there, too, I would Yeah, say. I
1: agree. It's Because, again, that would have just sort of it would have ruined the like the action scenes for moria if you had like this weird other smaller action scene right sword. before you get to moria
0: yeah and i think you have to single moria out as being probably the best fantasy action sequence of all time i mean i can't i don't even know what the runner up would be it's unbelievable how good the moria material is from once they yeah. enter to once they leave and and or candidly- even
1: just even like before they enter just all the stuff like once they get once they enter the set that has like the the door and then the lake yeah like that's
0: where Moria starts all that stuff so fucking cool it's great and and like yeah. the whole scene on the stairs where they're just trying to it's this big set piece where they're just trying to get from one set of stairs to the next set and there's a little gap and they have to jump and be yeah. thrown and all this stuff and it's like even i've seen the movie like 25 times i'm still on the edge of my seat during that scene because it's like it's so well done.
2: Yeah. And
0: there's arrows flying everywhere, and Legolas is going to town mm-hmm. with his arrows, and then they get to the Bridge of khazad Doom and fuck. Fuck, is that a sad fucking scene? Even when you know what's coming, yeah. even when you can quote it and make jokes about it, when you're watching it, Gandalf's death fucking hurts. Yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because for one, he gets to be the biggest badass in the world before he goes. Mm-hmm. But then he's gone, and probably one of the best pieces of music in the series starts—the Howard Shore music yeah, and the Superman and, trailer music. Yep, and you <laughs> they used—they did use this music in the trailer for Man of Steel, which is so <laughs> weird. Like, yeah, it's just
1: like as soon as I saw that trailer, I was like. This is, is this the Lord of the Rings? Wait, this is the music that plays when Gandalf dies. Like, it's so, it's such a good piece of music that I could, like, completely out of context just watching the trailer. I was like... I know exactly where in the fucking Fellowship of the Ring this music plays. Yeah, that's impressive for a piece of music to be that iconic from a film that I'm not just like I'm pretty sure that's from Lord of the Rings. It's like no, I know a, the moment in the movie this plays, and I can recall it instantly as soon
0: as I hear that music. Well, it's it's edited so well here where Frodo has his no, and, but I like great.
1: yeah, I like how it's like you sort of he goes no, and it sort of like fades
0: out so you don't like get the and that's when the sound drops yeah, and the music this, builds like, and yeah. This
1: Fucking great, and then it's like they're running up the stairs, and you have the arrows hitting the wall. Yeah, it's
0: like, ting. I mean, we have great. to obviously praise Ian McKellen for this scene because he's phenomenal just giving his speech.
2: Yeah. to the Balrog.
0: But I think what makes the emotions right. of that scene really work for me from the grief angle is Elijah Wood and Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, because Elijah Wood just doing the full on—he's broken from what he just saw. Yeah, and and Viggo Mortensen, Aragorn is just trying to hold it together because he knows now he has to be the leader. Mm-hmm. And and that sudden sense of duty you know imparted upon him yeah it's really well done
1: yeah although then also I really love like earlier to that point when they go and they uh, with the well and Gandalf reading
0: from the book fucking love that part yes like, we cannot get out they boom. are coming yeah. boom and the drums and I do just... get out Yeah. It's, it's fucking great. So much great stuff in Moria. And I have no idea how they shot all that stuff because none of it looks fake. I mean, it's just, it looks yeah. like they found the mines of Moria and mm-hmm. went and shot there. Yeah. <laughs> just
1: like that really great moment when they get into like Kazadoom proper and it like sort of like lights up a bit and you see all the pillars, but it's still like pitch black. Yeah. And sort of just you in your mind, you can imagine when the doors were there, it would have been like fully lit and there'd been torches everywhere and it would have looked fucking amazing. Yeah. But now it's just like this like desolate rundown place.
0: I wonder if there's any way they could do a glimpse of that in The Hobbit, like Moria at its height.
1: I mean, they could at the end, because Balin goes to right. Doom, so yeah. they could cool. follow him a little bit and be like, yeah, this, yeah. this is what happens to Balin. Yep. Balin went on to go run the mines of Moria, and then eventually he got fucking killed, and his tomb would get smashed by a cave
0: troll. Yeah, it's too bad. Balin did not deserve what he got. Yeah, in any case, so that's sort of the, that whole sequence, and then we get into Lothlorien, which I love how they did Lothlorien in the movies. And then the person who makes this section work is obviously Kate Blanchett, who I'm pretty sure was put on this earth to play Galadriel, and she's yeah. a, she's a great actress in everything. She's mm-hmm. just a phenomenal actress. She's she's a chameleon. She can do anything, but. I think she's actually an elf. I just I think she's an elf queen. That's who. That's yeah. She's they didn't
1: even put on the ear makeup. It's no. Just you've never noticed it
0: before. They put makeup on in all of her other roles.
1: Yeah. Exactly. They just CGI out the pointy ears. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you get that feeling when you watch her that she's just like that's? that's yeah. Galadriel. No. Exactly.
1: That's just that's just Galadriel. I'm yeah. totally with you on that.
0: And it works really well. Again, the Lothlorien sets. Amazing.
1: Yeah. It's those are my favorite sets. It looks yeah like that's what like Lothlorien looks like. Like it's just like so perfectly breathes out what, like, an elvish home should be, especially in those kinds of elves. I like the distinction between Lothlorien and Rivendell, where, Loth- like, Rivendell's so much more welcoming and homey, and it's like you get the sense, like, you could go... the last you could go, last, yeah, house. You could go to take a vacation at Rivendell. It's like a spa. And then Lothlorien is like, it's a really cool place. You might not want to go there, because they might kind of fuck you up. Yeah. They're, like, they, they're really, like kind of nice people sometimes, but if you get on her bad side, like Galadriel, she might fuck you up.
0: Yeah. And uh, then you have the whole gift-giving scene, which is really well done, how they do it here. Um, it's another thing that they actually cut in the extended version, or in the theatrical version, yeah. which you cannot imagine watching the extended cut. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's one of those scenes where I do remember it got it isn't there. It occurs to me every time I watch the extended cut
1: that that's not in the theatrical edition. I'm like...
0: Oh it's this not in the theatrical? Because region? it's it's actually it's kinda crucial because that's where Legolas gets his bow. Yeah. That's where Aragorn gets, gets his, his knife. Yeah. There's there's some seeds you know, sort of sown there and it's only a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean. and
1: that's where uh, the fucking Frodo gets the even star that he needs to use. Well, that is in the, the theatrical. Oh, is that part of the theatrical?
0: What's but so yeah. weird is in the theatrical they just do him getting the even star yeah. and it's a really, it's, again, it's just an awkward cut that once you see the extended you see how they cut around it and it's, they kind of had to do it awkwardly because the scene as written and, and shot doesn't allow for that. Yeah. But, it's great. It's got that wonderful shot from the trailer of the like the the eight elves up to the eight members of the fellowship giving them their gifts and stepping back. Yeah. And it's it's cool. It's also where they get all their like elven brooches and, and the cloaks and yeah. these things. Uh, which is crucial in the two towers when they use it to become a rock. Yeah. Not lightly do the leaves of Lothorian fall. Yes. Lots of good stuff. In any case, Lothorian's cool. And then you've got them going down the river. And I, the, the, the shot that's so fucking iconic and great is the massive statues they see. Do you remember the names? Uh, no. Okay, I, can't I don't. It's one of those obscure Lord of the Rings names. Yeah, that's, but, that's one of the ones I can't remember. But man, is that a cool thing where I, I'm pretty sure those were just models they shot, but it looks real. And it, it, it's like if you've ever been to Mount Rushmore, it reminds you of that, only better.
1: It reminds me of the uh, Jason the Argonauts movie where they have the... Like, I always think those statues should come alive. Because yeah. if you have a statue that looks like that fucking awesome, it should come alive and they should have to fight it. But they should have changed that from the book. Just, like <laughs> Throwing that in there, this like really big action scene before you get to Aminan. It's like, oh shit, the Gondorian statue's coming alive, we gotta go kill it! Gimli, get your axe!
0: Yeah. In any case, a lot of cool stuff, them going down the river. Um, another tidbit from the behind the scenes is that uh, Legolas, in the in the movie obviously Legolas is in a boat with Gimli, but John Reese davies was not in the boat, it was his scale double. Yeah. And their boat sunk while they were going down the river, and the stun double almost died, and Orlando Bloom, I guess, saved his life. But, like either, like the boat kind of like hit a rock or something, it went under, and he was like pulling, and I guess he was stuck, and they had to get other people there and like pull him up and it's again, yeah, it's
1: like it's um, when you watch those bonus features, it's it's insane that the, all those people survive. This is, I mean, I do specifically remember the point in two towers where they say it's like Vigo Mortensen almost died when he's like wafting down this river, and it's like he almost drowned. It's like Viggo Mortensen almost fucking died.
0: It's like, <laughs> so weird. Yeah, it's I, like, I have another Jesus
1: Christ, being an actor is fucking dangerous. Yeah. I, I had no
0: idea. I, I actually have another cool story to tell, because we're about to talk about Amon Hen and the death of Boromir, and Sean, you know, Sean Bean doing some really great work yeah. there. So yeah. I want to tell Sean Bean's story from the behind the scenes, which okay. is that, you remember the scene in the movie where, it's, it's right after Gandalf dies, and, and Frodo falls in the snow and the ring is there, and Boromir... That's hits. before Gandalf dies. That's oh, before? Okay. Oh, yeah. In any case. But he sees the ring and he says, you know, S- so much trouble for such a little you yeah. know, ring. And, and he, you know, they have to convince him to give it back to Frodo. Really good scene. Yeah. They actually shot that in the mountains like that. If, if, uh, here's the thing about Lord of the Rings. If it looks like they're in the middle of a massive mountain range that is not easily accessible by humans, they were probably in the middle of a massive mountain range that is not easily accessible by humans. Yeah. And so they had to get to that spot by helicopter. Turns out Sean Bean has a massive fear of helicopters. He just hates it. and so he that, got, that is a
1: wise fear to have. Yeah. I would be afraid of helicopters too. That blade will fuck you up.
0: Yeah. So but flying up there, like he was really nervous. He hated going back down. He says during that scene, he was petrified the whole scene thinking about the helicopter. And so he said, I will never get in a helicopter again. I'm not going to do it. And they said, well, but Sean, we have other scenes in. And he's just like, I will climb there. Yeah, he did. He climbed. So there are other scenes where they're in mountain ranges like this. And what he did is he took a ski lift as far up as it would take him, and then he like hiked the rest of the way and like rock climbed. And so it took him hours. Like he had to get up at like two in the morning to get up there for like a ten a.m. shoot. And so they have this story where like I think it's it's Orlando Bloom saying like we were in a helicopter flying up and. And we look down and we see this little speck, and it's it's Sean Bean in his full board Yeah, that's costume. like, I was
1: hoping he was already dressed up because it might head That would look so fucking awesome because
0: he's got the big-ass shield. He had he's, sh- like, climbing up the yep. mountain. He had the shield, he had the full costume, and he was climbing up the mountain, just rock climbing to get to the set. That is dedication. Yeah, and Sean Bean is a fucking badass. Dude. Yes. <laughs> he's kind of a pussy,
1: but he's a fucking badass when he's a pussy. Yeah.
0: Okay, so anyway, Amon Hen. This is where you have the big—the Urukai finally arrive, and they have a big fight. Lots of good stuff. Really great climax, and poor Boromir. Yeah, poor Boromir gets gets Boromir. Yep, he does some shitty stuff to Frodo, but he makes up for it by dying to save Merry and Pippin.
1: Yeah, it's like it's a weird thing. The last time I watched this movie, Boromir's death hit me way harder than it ever did before. Like really? Boromir's death is always really sad. I don't know what it was. This is like that time I was like. God damn, Boromir, you this sucks. You should not have died. You are a cool dude. Yeah. This is like, you did some bad stuff, but you made up for it. It's like, but, I don't know why that scene hit me so hard the last time I watched the movie.
0: I just think they handle it so well with, uh, you know, Boromir gets you know, kind of gunned down with the arrows. I mean, it's brutal for one. It's arrow yeah, it after is. arrow after arrow. And then Aragorn has the big fight with the chief Urukai, which is awesome. is what they named him. He's Lurch. not character from the book. But I know. I don't have
1: no idea how I fucking know that.
0: Yeah. Lurtz is cool, and he, you know, beheads Lurtz, and then he goes and finds Boromir. And you have just that, this is the scene that breaks me, is Boromir going, you know, my captain, my king, and then my brother, my captain, my king, and like Aragorn, because it's funny, because this is the moment where Aragorn should be comforting Boromir, but Boromir comforts Aragorn, and I think that's what makes the scene work so well, is Boromir's sheer dedication. And, And this also goes back to changes they made in characters and and giving Aragorn more of an arc, is that Boromir's death is really what kicks off Aragorn's arc to definitely becoming king. Yeah. Because I think that's the moment when he sees his doubt starts to go away. Yeah, He obviously struggles with doubt throughout the series, but if it weren't for Boromir saying what he says to him when he dies, I don't think Aragorn would have sort of the courage to do what he needs to do.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And yeah. it's, and that's, in the books, that character arc's not there at all. Like, right. Aragorn's already torn, like, again, he's carrying the Shards of Narsil with him all the time he's yes. the, in the books he's totally accepted he wants to become king he just needs to get a way to do it yeah. and so them putting in that character arc for the movies is again probably the most significant change and I do understand why a lot of people don't like it but again I think it works so much better for a movie to have this dramatic character arc and I think the movie version of Aragorn is a really well fleshed out likable dynamic
0: character Yeah. we'll get to characters yeah. later on but yeah no, it's, it's very true uh, in terms of changes at the end of Fellowship of the Ring here, really the only thing is they shuffled some stuff around. Uh, Boromir dies at the beginning of the two towers, technically, but it's all one book. you know. Yeah, it's
1: fine. yeah you can cut them out wherever you want. Right. right.
0: So they just moved that up. They didn't move it up. They just redid the chronology so it all happens at the same time because obviously Boromir's death provides a really solid climax yeah. for film one. And then Frodo and Sam go off. and Sean Essen almost loses his foot. Yeah. This bad shit happens, and and that's Fellowship of the Ring. Damn good movie.
1: Yep, damn good movie.
0: Two Towers, also a, yeah, damn, also, good movie. Also a damn good movie. Uh, Two Towers, a damn intense movie. Mm-hmm. Two Towers is where like sh- Two Towers is is very much follows the Empire Strikes Back model of things have gotten really fucking shitty, yeah, and it doesn't look like they're going to get better, mm-hmm. and then there's a, like a slight ray of hope at the end,
1: yeah.
0: So. I guess the biggest part
1: when Gimli gets put in carbonite and gets sent off to John the Hutt's palace. Oh,
0: I know. Or, like, Legolas is just torn up about it. Yeah. You know, Gimli finally said he loves him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. Wouldn't it be Gimli saying, I know? I know! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine Orlando Bloom saying, I love you in that voice, in the Princess Leia voice, way too clearly. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. That's really weird.
1: Okay. We should get back to the actual fucking movie instead of this weird hybrid we just created. From
0: a, nar- from a narrative standpoint, the big change in the Two Towers is that it's just a structural thing, is that the books are told out of chronological order. So book three, uh, which is the first book of Two Towers, is just the Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli story, and then the Marion and Pippin stuff. Yeah. And then book four is all of Frodo and Sam up to uh, the end of the Shelob material. So, really, they only adapt about half of each book of Two Towers for mm-hmm. the Two Towers movie. It's, it's not a lot of pages, actually. It's sort of like people talk about the Hobbit movies won't be doing much of the, of the Hobbit book, each one. Yeah. Two Towers does not do a whole lot of Lord of the Rings. It's a pretty limited amount of story, yeah. but it feels really big because it's yeah. a very important part. You have to flesh it out. And so instead of presenting it out of chronological order like that, they do it all chronologically. They reshuffle it. So what's happening with Frodo is shown as going on. What's happening with Aragorn? and Gimli and Legolas, and they just use the timeline from the appendices to match that all together.
1: Yeah, they just intercut between the two.
0: Yeah. So... Teams. Right. So the Frodo and Sam stuff is pretty much identical to how you know it until they meet Faramir, and then the big change is Faramir... Because this is going to be the climax of film two for these characters, Faramir has to become an obstacle, mm-hmm. because otherwise they'd you know, they would just they'd be going nowhere. Yeah. So Faramir has to become a bit of an obstacle. He takes them to us, Gilead. None of that happens, but... It's, I think it's, we'll get to that part of the story, but I think it's yeah. pretty compelling stuff. Um, and then on the aragorn like awesome Gimli side, really it's pretty close. You could argue they make Helm's Deep bigger than it is, but Helm's Deep is a big event. I mean, people yeah. forget that in the book. It's, if you read the chapter, it's really well written as a battle scene. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty rousing. Uh, the big change with Helm's Deep, though, is that, for one, it, they also sort of add an arc for Theoden. In that, yeah. in, in the book, he intends to fight the orcs. Always, he's going to ride out and meet them. Yeah. In in the movie, it's they're going to hide at Helm's Deep. And then the other thing is that the elves come to help the yeah. men at Helm's Deep, and that does not happen in the book. But I think it's really fucking cool in the movie.
1: Yeah, and yeah, it's also like I don't. That's another change that a lot of people kind of get up in arms about. I'm like,
0: but it's very true to the spirit of the book because yeah. what I think uh, Hull. I forget the name of the character, but the, the main Haldir, Haldir who comes, he says, we're honoring the Last Alliance. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. You know? It should have be been Glorfindel, though. Glorfindel <laughs> should have gone to Helm's Deep at the very least. Glorfindel <laughs> would have been there. That is kind of a big change, though. He dies and Galadriel has no husband anymore.
1: No, no, uh, the, Galadriel's husband is Celeborn. Oh, okay, yeah. Haldir's like the captain of the They Wolverine look
0: Garden. similar, sorry.
1: Yeah, Celeborn's like barely
0: even in the movies, okay. I think. Yeah. In any case, so... Those are sort of all the changes, but let's talk about the stories. You want to start with the Frodo and Sam side? It's a little simpler?
1: Sure, yeah. They they find Gollum, and they walk.
0: Yeah, and uh, I guess we'll talk about Gollum as a character and a a technical achievement later when we talk about characters, but boy, it's it's like Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. If Gollum didn't work, the entire trilogy would be kaputs.
1: Yeah, no, definitely.
0: (laughs) But he does, and that makes this stuff in the Two Towers really compelling. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and just, I, I like, all the locations they shoot in for their journey to, you know, Mount Doom is really barren. I don't know what these places are, but they're depressing places to look at, and they really yeah. help the atmosphere of the films.
1: Yeah, it's, I can't remember the name of the, do you remember the name of the, like, the bog that they go through? The,
0: I, the Dead Marshes.
1: The Dead Marshes, that's it. It's like, go with them. Fuck like, that looks like the most terrifying goddamn place in the world. I mean, I know there aren't, like, elven corpses in the actual, wherever that marsh is in real life. Yeah. That doesn't matter, dude. That place looked fucking terrifying.
0: Yeah. So what do you think about this material with Frodo and Sam in Two Towers?
1: I really like it. I yeah. think, I think even though, you know, it's kind of one of those things where not a lot really happens, they do basically just find Schmiegel, and just walk for yeah. a long time. But it's, they, there's a lot of good, just sort of character stuff establishing the relationship between Frodo, Sam, and Schmeichel. You get Elijah Wood kind of slowly being more like, like, you know, despondent gazes into the camera.
0: Which he does really well. Yeah. People yeah. make fun of that. He's good at it. I don't think most actors could do that convincingly.
1: Yeah. He does really start selling how heavy the burden is for him of the, of the ring. Yeah. But yeah, no, I really like this section. I really like, I can't believe I couldn't remember this called The Dead Martians, because I really like that section in both yeah. in the book and in the movie.
0: Yeah. That's a good section, and I like how they do it in the film. They have that that shot of him falling into the water was in every trailer too. I don't know if you remember that, but that's just like dramatic shot of Frodo keeling over. Yeah. In any case. A lot of good stuff there. And um yeah, there's not a whole lot to talk about point by point with that. Mm-hmm. Just sort of a general atmosphere thing. I mean, it's it's an interesting balancing act, because obviously I think the stuff with Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas and Rohan is the attraction of the two towers. That's what yeah. makes this movie stand out, and that's the best stuff.
1: The stuff you play in the game.
0: Right. So it I think it speaks to how well Peter Jackson and company did this movie, that the stuff with Frodo and Sam does not feel like a distraction when you watch it. It feels like a very organic part of the movie yeah. that you enjoy seeing.
1: Because... Technically that is the most important stuff that's really happening, even though nothing's really happening. But the most important thing is getting the Ring to Mordor. That's what you're watching.
0: Yeah. So and, and that's an interesting balancing act that Two Towers plays, and and I think they are wise to probably prioritize in the Two Towers movie the Aragorn material.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, for movie I'd purposes. That makes sense. The most dynamic.
0: But, so the stuff with Frodo and Sam plays this sort of interesting dual function where it helps break up the pacing. Because if it was just Aragorn, like Austin Gimli doing sort of this war movie, it might be kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But when you have, you can cut back to Frodo and Sam, which, it's very intense too, but it's calmer. It's more yeah. sort of methodical. Um, it, it kind of makes for a nicely paced movie. I agree. So, works really well. And then they, they meet Faramir, and David Wenham is the actor, and I think he's great. And yeah. Faramir's a good yeah. character. And, and I, I like how they do it. I think, obviously, a lot of the broad strokes are still there. I mean, initially, Faramir does not trust them. Once he finds out who they are, he immediately does in the book. But Philippa Boyens makes a good point in the bonus features, which is that in the book, when Faramir hears their whole story and he immediately trusts them and says of the ring, I would not pick that up if it lay by the wayside within my reach, that does rob the ring of its power in yeah. terms of trying to build it. Especially because the two towers for Frodo is all about what the ring is doing to him. If you have a character just walk on the screen and be like, the ring? Fuck yeah, it. Fuck that.
1: I'm not going to touch that thing. They're supposed to corrupt the hearts of man? Not me. I'm Faramir.
0: Golden boy. It wouldn't work. And yeah, I think I agree. the way they do it here, where they allow Faramir to, as Samwise says, show his true colors at the end of the film and very strongly show those colors, but still having him give in to temptation in a certain sense makes the ring that much more of a villain and it leads into Return of the King very well and it hammers home the point of the two towers which is that Frodo is dealing with a lot. <laughs> I thought the point of the two towers was that there were two towers. Yes. There's actually more than two towers but I know. there are lots of towers. Yes, there's, that's an interesting thing about the title of the two towers is everyone has a different interpretation of what those towers are.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the movie very much implies that it's the Tower of Orthanc and Bardur.
0: Which makes the most sense to me.
1: Yeah, but I mean, Minas Tirith is a tower. Helm's Deep has a tower. Right. Yeah. but no, in any case... I think trees metaphorically could be a tower, so Fangorn Forest, there's a bunch of towers in there.
0: Yeah. Uh, Threebeard's a tower. What do you think of the material uh, in Asgiliath at the end? That's a pretty cool set, I think. And yeah, I, I, that like, I like
1: the crumbling city of Asgiliath as a set, too. I think and I,
0: and I like that whole idea that the people of Gondor are so sort of proud and desperate that they will defend this worthless... Up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's the last right. sort of stronghold before the Pelinor fields. Yes. And it's like, that's like their little, like, I, I do like it's like this sort of like just direct military zone where they have yeah. this like little outpost on this river. And it's like, that's the last step that they need to defend, or else all the people from Mordor can get to Minas Tirith. Yeah. So it's like, this is a little piece of shit and it's just completely destroyed but we have to hold it down.
0: Yeah, and changing it so Frodo and Sam go there also has this other dual function of setting up Gondor as a good, uh, setting up and sort of providing a springboard into Return of the King so that when that starts we know the importance of Osgiliath, we know what they've been going through. There's more shorthand for it when Return of the King opens. Yeah, I agree. Because Return of the King has a lot to get through. I mean, it's a lot of text. Yeah. So because it's got half of the two towers and then all of Return of the King. So in any case, really good stuff. Good ending. I, I, one of my favorite scenes in the whole series is the last scene of the movie. It's Frodo and Sam, you know, sort of they're just, again, walking, walking, and they've gotten away from Osgiliath, and it's Sam talking about, you know, the stories that they may sing of them, and Frodo telling him, you'll be in those songs, you'll yeah. be in those stories. And Sam not believing him, but Frodo being very adamant, and realizing that Frodo kind of treated Sam like shit in this movie at some points, but yeah. the real Frodo, who doesn't always appear in this film, the real Frodo cares very much for Sam. Yeah. So it's a really touching moment to end the movie on. Actually, they end the movie on Gollum talking to yeah. himself about that's, Shelob. Yeah, that's... has a very foreboding... It. Two Towers ends with this beautiful, beautifully haunting shot where it's them walking and it pans up and yes. up and then you see just the dead lands of Mordor and the Eye the Tower and Mount Doom and there's flame and the sky is black and red. It's terrifying. It's, yeah. <laughs> and awesome.
1: It's like, I... I always kind of like to think that Mordor really exists in New Zealand. Like, there's just, like, this crazy patch of just barren, black, desolate earth with this massive mountain just sitting in the middle of fucking New Zealand that nobody likes to go to. This is fucking terrifying.
0: <laughs> that, would be, that would be very funny. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the main thrust of the two towers, which is the Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli material, and then that intersects with Merry and Pippin and Treebeard.
1: And Gandalf the White.
0: Yes, Gandalf the White. I kind of forgot about that, but yes, Gandalf the White, obviously, big thrust of this movie is him yeah. coming back and helping them with their battles. Uh, and so the villain of this film, and they do sort of a clever thing here where they very much position him as the villain of film two, the obstacle to be defeated as Saruman, Saruman. And, and the forces of Isengard. <laughs> yeah. And it works really well because there's only so much you can get out of an enemy who's just an eye on a tower. Yeah. You or know?
1: or like the abstract concept of evil and temptation. Yes. Yeah. Like does not necessarily make the most <laughs> compelling film film villain. No But the Christopher so, Lee definitely does.
0: Oh yeah. I that scene, another great shot, which is just about revealing things, is when he and Wormtongue they're in their little they're in Isengard Tower and they're talking and, and Wormtongue is kinda complaining. He says, Well we can't fight them, we need an army of thousands and then they walk out and it's that great shot just, just it's on Christopher Lee's head, the back yeah. of his head, and he says tens of thousands, and walks out, and there's just orcs everywhere, yeah. and it's just as far as the eye can see, and he just has this little smile. Yes, yeah. Christopher Lee, man, oh, he's good. Yeah, I love
1: Christopher Lee; he's so good as Saruman. The other, the, and one of the things I really love about sort of the Saruman, the villainous side of the thing, is they they sort of like really push the like machine part of it. Where you know he's like manufacturing urukai, and you see he's like you know he's tearing down Fangorn forest to get the fuel, and he's like they're making all the swords. And I just love the design of the of Saruman's urukai with like the white hand, where they have like the shield with the two points on the end and the sword. That's just like it looks like this big fucking like straight butcher knife with just a spike at the end of it. And yeah. it's like, and again the, with like the little book I had, the reason they have that spike is to like throw horsemen off of their horses. It's like. That's such a cool little fucking detail, because it looks awesome, but there's a reason, because they're going to fight the fucking Rohirrim, they're going to fight a lot of cavalrymen, you know, they're the fucking Riders of Rohan, yeah. so they need a little spike on their sword.
0: Makes sense. Yep. Um, no, lots of good stuff with that, and and it's also, I think it's an important thing of keeping the themes of the book alive, which is that, you know, we talked last time that J.R.R. Tolkien was not fond of allegory, but I, you know, real world events, in. Influenced how he wrote. Yeah. And obviously, the sort of manufacturing of war was something that disturbed him, as it should disturb most people. Yeah. And they really get that point across very well in the movies. The spiky fucking swords. Yeah. So, the enemy is well established. And obviously, I think this is a good time to talk about Merry and Pippin and Treebeard, is that because Isengard... Isengard works really well as a foe when Treebird, Treebeard is one of your main characters. Yeah. Because he's not just chopping down trees, he's killing other Treebeards. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with treebeard's him? Treebeard's fucking cool. Of course he is. I love Treebeard in this movie so much. He's great. And all I just think the Treebeard material could fall so flat so fast, but they yeah. do it so well in these movies, and you know, mad props to Merry and Pippin, Dominic Monaghan, and Billy Boyd. Basically, they just were sitting on a blue screen for this entire film, acting yeah. like sitting on a branch on a blue screen. Because, you know, Treebeard hadn't been animated yet. They didn't know what he was going to be like. They did yeah. a really good job just sort of interacting with nothing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So good stuff. But main thrust of the movie, again, is Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. They're sort of the stars here. That's why they get the box art on the game.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, it's just sort of... This, this movie is about the culture of Rohan, which they do really well. So many phenomenal characters. Eowyn, uh, Aomer, you know, and... Yeah. King Theoden and all the riders of Rohan—it's just—it's a lot of cool material here.
1: I agree. I really love. I just—I I love the the setting of Rohan. I, I love how they—you know—it's a lot of really flat plains, and then a, like Edoras, the city, the capital, is like on that like little hill, and it's all made of wood. It's got like sort of the Viking style hall at the top. Fucking love that. It's, it's such a
0: cool looking set, and it was—it was really windy there whenever they shot. There. So that's why like the flag blows off in the wind. It wasn't yeah. a creative decision. It just blew off in the wind.
1: That's <laughs> why so fucking Aylwin's always... Her hair's always just all over the place when she's outside of Ederos.
0: She looks really cool with that, too. Yeah. I don't know why. But no, Rohan is, is probably my favorite culture in the films just because they're, they're so cool and I love all the characters and the, 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 just the, the fact that they do all of their stuff on horses and horses are awesome. And, yeah. And I guess there was another production hurdle of getting that many horses together in one place... There really aren't, you know, cultures of people in the world who ride that many horses.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of exaggerated a little bit,
0: but... Yes. Yeah. So, anyway, cool stuff. But this is all about building up to the battle at Helm's Deep, and so The Two Towers is in many ways a war movie, and it does what all good war stories do, where the build-up is just as important as the execution itself. Yeah. And so a good hour there of The Two Towers is just them, A, getting to Helm's Deep, and then... You know, just preparing for battle and just kind of wallowing in pity and doubt. Mm-hmm. But there's a big change on their way to Helm's Deep in that the Wargs attack and they think Aragorn is killed.
1: Yeah, and Vigamortson almost actually dies. I'm yes.
0: Like <laughs> what did you? What do you think of that whole section?
1: I think it's fine. I think it's kind of weird in a way that it's like I don't know how necessary it really is to have Aragorn. Kind of maybe not die and then come back. It's it's
0: always been a part that I I've never disliked, but I've always kind of questioned how much I need it. You know? Yeah, I
1: kind of feel the same way. It's like, it doesn't feel like it necessarily. I mean, I'll take it for the really fucking cool shot of uh, when everyone comes in and he opens the door and he's like dripping wet. Oh, it's a well, yeah. it's a hundred percent worth it for that. Yeah, that's like it's worth it for that shot. But it's like like intellectually, I don't know what the motivation. I guess. Maybe the motivation was to have a little, like, weird Arwen dream sequence, maybe, to remind you that that's still going on. I'm not sure. That's something that
0: I actually want to mention, is how they integrate Arwen into this movie is really clever and really artistically done, because their original idea, which was a terrible idea, and I'm glad they abandoned it, is that uh, Arwen would have been the one who comes in and leaves the elves in Helm's Deep. Weird. Instead of Haldir? Yeah. That would have been really weird and stupid. Because they wanted...
1: she, she would have had to... Like fucking be trekking to get all the way from Rivendell to Helm's Deep. Like it took us like hours in movie time, and you just like you just got here. We just found out that Helm's Deep was going to be besieged.
0: Right. It would not have worked. It would have been weird. But instead, they have this sort of interesting flashback in the middle of the movie where they're sort of riding to Helm's Deep, and it's this. It starts out as a as sort of a flashback to their time together in Rivendell right before the Fellowship leaves, and it transitions into dream sequence. And there's just sort of this beautiful ethereal quality to it that. Liv Tyler really sells. Yeah. And that's an interesting point, is that Liv Tyler is not an actress who's been all that good in other movies. Peter Jackson got really good work out of her in these. She's, like, she's kind yeah. of just born to play that part. She mm-hmm. just seems like she, again, she, like Kate Blanchett, she's an elf. Yeah. Elf maiden. And, and just, I think those romantic scenes with them in the middle where it's, it's all more, it's about their relationship, but it also hammers home Aragorn's sort of self-doubt in these moments. And it makes him more of a compelling character. It's just a really well done segment of the movie, I think.
1: Yeah. Although then they also do, they like throw in this weird sort of half romance between Aragorn and Eowyn that I always thought was also just kind of weird. That's They're in the really... book. Is it in the book? That's absolutely in the book. That's I why she goes to war. Any... She,
0: she, it, It's even more pronounced in the book. She goes to war with, with Gondor because she wants to die. That's how much she loves Aragorn and that's how oh, much Oh,
1: she... shit. Yeah, no, I kind of... And that's when she meets Faramir and falls in love with Faramir. Okay, I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really... It, that always felt like something that was added into the movies for some reason. That's kind right. of weird. But, because it doesn't feel like it really needs to be in the movie to me.
0: No, I think, it, and I think they handled it better in Return of the King. There's a really good scene in Return of the King where he sort of tells her how it is, and, and she's sort of heartbroken over it. I think they handle it really well there. Yeah. But I agree, it's a little clunky in Two Towers. But again, I mean, that's one of those few issues that is actually a holdover from the book. Yeah, that's awesome it hmm. yeah. was,
1: was weird that I did not remember that was in the book.
0: Well, it's, it's just a weird. It's not a kind of Tolkien thing to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. It, it's, there's a lot of stuff involving Eowyn that you would not have thought Tolkien wrote. But I mean, he wrote the one-liner "I am no man," <laughs> and the, and this, that's yes. all like that. Look the, upon the killing of the Witch King is verbatim what Tolkien yeah. wrote. They changed nothing. I mean, he wrote that action sequence. I mean, it's a very cinematic part in the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's very weird. In any case, they get to Helm's Deep. Lot of sort of waiting around, building tension, and then when the battle starts, holy crap! Greatest epic battle scene of all time, probably yeah. Yeah, what's the, I, I, It's so good, and the color scheme—just the blues and the the blacks and how dark it is—it's just and so many great moments, and it's just, yeah. just a sense of scope. And as it goes along, and I, again, I it, it feels like an actual battle where there are strategic elements to it. There are portions of it like they'll they'll be winning at some point, they'll be retreating at others. Yeah. sort of this back and forth, and then uh. Gandalf arrives on the fifth day, and yeah. it's awesome.
1: Look to the west, love with all the writers of Rohan. Yep. Yeah.
0: Gandalf is not in this movie much. Not really, no. Which is fine, I mean, he's on this part of yeah. the book much, but it's interesting. But no, it's, 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 it's a very satisfying part of the movie. Yeah. And of course, in the extended cuts you have at the end, you know, Gandalf comes in, they, they kill all the orcs, and then they drive the rest of them into Fanghorn Forest, and the Ents have just arrived, and they just beat the shit out of the orcs.
1: Yeah. It's great. just, like, the great... Where it's, like, a shot and, like, the trees just sort of, like, start shaking. You hear some, like, screams. It's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> they're dying,
0: horrible deaths. That's
1: pretty brutal. Although, speaking of Gandalf, one thing that I always thought was kind of weird in the Two Towers, because, you know, there's the part where the they're going into Fangorn Forest, and then, like, they hear, like, they... And they're, like, coming upon to... The, they think it's Saruman, because it's, you know, Saruman is the white wizard. And, it, like, the book's... Really, sort of push that, and it works a lot better in the books, where it's like you think it's Saruman. It's like in the movie, they kind of try to do that too, and it's like that's not that's not Saruman.
0: They it's, do it for a couple minutes, I yeah, mean. but it's like I don't
1: know, but yeah, they do it like for a little bit, but it's like it always comes across as like this weird moment in the movie to me, because it's like they don't try to sell it almost at all to me, I feel. It's like, yeah, yeah. no, that's that's not Saruman. That's, there's, no. Well, because yeah,
0: no. the difference is that we're omniscient in the movies, and we know yeah. where Saruman is.
1: Yeah, no, so it's like, it just kind of comes across as weird that they try to sell that in the movie to me.
0: Yeah, but it's well done, and when Ian McCullen returns, even yeah. if you know he's coming back, you want to applaud. And, I just want to say right now, best horse in The Lord of the Rings is Shadowfax. Shadowfax is really cool. He's an awesome-looking horse.
1: What about a Viggo Mortensen's horse, like Breo, again. I think his name is
0: he's, Breo. Breo, that's. But, it. But Breo's great. Yeah. But Shadowfax, man.
1: I don't know. Breo's pretty awesome.
0: Uh, the scene where where Aragorn sort of breaks Breo is really yeah. good. Um, and just sort of the the way he talks to horses. I feel like that wasn't scripted. I think Viggo. I think yeah. Should... No, I think
1: I think I think Viggo Mortensen can talk to horses. I'm sure he can. I mean, because that's one of the things that this, particularly in the Two Towers extended edition set, is that like you know Viggo Mortensen's a very accomplished horse rider in real life. Like he's yeah. he was in Hidalgo so it's like that side of him really comes across in that part of the movie I feel that's why I really like Braille because Vito Mortensen really likes Braille
0: yep it's really cool so battle's great a lot of good stuff at the end here's an interesting thing to ponder is that originally they were going to go all the way in the Two Towers movie too they go back to Isengard they have the final conversation with Saruman that was all shot for Two Towers Hmm. that would have been a really weird pacing move
1: I agree yeah
0: I can't Cause I just I, maybe the movie was cut differently originally, but mm-hmm. it's it's just weird to me to think that you could go from the big helms deep climax where you've got you know Sean Aston narrating over it about you know the things that really matter
1: yeah
0: uh, and then have another like six scenes yeah, no it's
1: a good thing they didn't do that because I yeah. agree that would have been a weird way they, to pace the end of the movie, yeah they,
0: I guess they reshot it all and sort of reoriented it to be an opening to return of the King, where I think it works really well, yeah but yeah
1: but then they cut it for the theatrical edition
0: which is so weird mm-hmm. it's, it's the most awkward edit too because they get there and, and Treebeard's just like he's not a problem anymore and they're all like
1: okay yeah it's like, like yeah, I guess we don't have to worry about Sartmon
0: anymore and it makes the scene feel kind of pointless too because all they do is they go there they grab Merry and Pippin they get the Palantir and they go and it's really brief yeah and it's just kind of weird in any case that's the two towers anything else to say about it? It's good. I think probably like out of the three movies,
1: if you're watching it, it's sort of like a standalone movie. Two Towers is probably the weakest to me. Okay. I think like, I do really like Helm's Deep, but I, I think it kind of has a problem being the middle part of the
0: Right, it's just sort me. of a natural yeah. thing. And, and I guess, gun to my head, I would say the same thing, but then again, I really love it. and I, I, I couldn't choose which yeah, one is weakest. I, guess, I, I can probably say which one is my favorite. I really... I, I, I can't say which one is my least. Oh, well. In any case, the next one is Return of the King. And, man, if this series was not epic already, Return of the King is like, it feels like its own sort of like 12-hour mission unto itself. It's a big movie. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the theatrical version, it's three and a half hours long. Extended, it's over four hours sans credits. When you add credits in, it's like four hours, 45 minutes or whatever. Really long fucking credits. Yeah. So, man, Return of the King. Damn good movie. Damn big movie. And it sort of restores the focus of the narrative to Frodo and Sam, even though all yeah. the stuff in Gondor and Minas Tirith is still very, very important. Mm-hmm. But Return of the King is just a really, really wholly satisfying conclusion. Yeah. I right? that's the but way you have to say about it. F-
1: it's five of them.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, yeah,
1: I, I, I really, really love Return of the King.
0: It's great. Yeah. Um, what, should we, what should we say about Return of the King? I think we should start at the beginning. Okay. The beginning of the end. Yes, so do you want to talk about the scene with Saruman for a little bit, like how they did it? Because basically what they do is they move up some of the material from scouring of the Shire, the way he dies, mm-hmm. and how Wormtongue kills him, and they kind of put it here. But they also mix it with the scene from the book where Saruman shouts some things at Gandalf. Yeah. And in this movie, it's, it's, they make it sort of into a foreboding sort of warning thing, like what you're going to encounter in this movie. Yeah. I think it's a good opening to the film, because it kind of ties off film two, kicks you into film three, and sort of shows the connections between them.
1: I agree, and then, like, I just love that Saruman just, like, he gets stabbed in the back, then he falls off the Tower of Orthanc, and then he lands on this, like, spiky windmill thing don't know why that's there and he like sort of like slowly like falls into the water as it spins it's the like,
0: waste, of God is yeah. washing away yeah <laughs> it's just
1: like it's just this
0: incredibly brutal fucking disgraceful death for Saruman like if he is still conscious in that moment that is like the most painful thing like his vertebrae is just shredded yeah, I assume like all his gonna, internal organs like,
1: oh, I've just been impaled twice and oh god this water is so gross oh no <laughs> no no Oh God! Oh
0: Jesus!
1: This is fucking disgusting.
0: <laughs> there's got to be a lot of dead bodies in that water too. Yeah, It'd be not good. <laughs> all right, so let's sort of go story by story again. On the There's there, Return of the King makes a lot of changes, but they're pretty intricate changes. I mean, again, yeah. it, it continues the chronological cutting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I guess the sort of big tactical change in the movie is that it it's this all goes down in the book, similar in that you know. Uh, it's Mary or Pippin that goes to. It's Pippin who goes to Minas Tirith yeah, with Gandalf.
1: Stage with Rohan. That's all
0: very similar. Sort of how the siege of Minas Tirith goes. It's all very similar. Both the of the
1: Palantir. Right. Yeah. That's
0: all very similar. Uh, and then Aragorn and Gillian Legolas breaking off to go find the ghosts is. It's the similar thrust, but what their their actual goal in the book is, they're going to get the Dúnedain, and they're going to get the Dúnedain yeah. to come be their reinforcements. And what the the ghost people do is they help them get past the ships. I forget what they're called.
1: It's like the corsairs. Yeah,
0: the corsairs of Umbar, uh, and that's where the ghosts help them in the book, and then the ghosts are gone. They just sort of simplify that so that the ghosts can kind of be a Deus Ex Machina in the Battle of Minas Tirith, which yeah. I think works. Works okay.
1: It's, it's I, I kind of wish it wasn't like that because it is feels a bit anticlimactic. That it's yeah. like oh, they get there and then. The, like the one thing I always do, I don't understand about that part how the battle ends is. Why did the ghosts wait until Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas get off the boat? Like, presume they're ghosts! Why do they, they... They don't need to be on the fucking boat. It's like... It's just like... They, I guess they have a the really cool shot, but it's like intellectual. It's like, you guys could have just, like... Your ghosts... You could have just gone there. Just fucking fly through the ground and get over to the fucking miniseries. You get into the, the battle like five minutes after Aragorn did the whole contract thing with you guys. It's like,
0: doesn't make any sense. Maybe they just wanted to keep an eye on Aragorn and make sure he didn't break his vow.
1: I guess, I don't know. I don't It's know. just like, yeah. it, I always thought that was like, kind of, come on, guys. I get, I get this picture everyone sitting in the boat. It's like, guys, just go. You, we need to be on the boat. Your fucking ghosts just go. God damn it. <laughs> it's like, how many thousand people died because the ghosts just didn't get over there already?
0: All right, good point. Um, but that's sort of, that's the big change in that side of the story. Other than that, it's pretty similar that after that they have the last debate where Aragorn decides they're going to buy some time for Frodo by sieging the Black Gate of Mordor. Mm-hmm. They siege the Black Gate of Mordor. You have the voice of Sauron. He comes out. Mouth of Sauron. Mouth of Sauron. Having a little conversation. Aragorn fucking kills him, and then the battle starts. On the other side, Frodo and Sam. They, you know, they meet Shelob. Uh, although the no, there is a big change with Frodo and Sam in that Frodo sends Sam away. Yeah, and that's... so it makes it a little more dramatic when when Frodo goes into Shelob's Lair alone, and then Sam comes and saves him. Yeah. That's a change I actually... It's a tough one, but I think I I like it because of how it ends up. I think I like how dramatically it... Really I,
1: I I think so too just because it... especially when you watch the movies in quick succession because this is one change I was looking for the last time I did it because this is another one of those that I can really understand why a lot of people don't like this change but I feel like it would have made that section of the movie really dull yeah. because because nothing would be happening with Frodo and Sam like character-wise. They'd just be Right. Still just keep on going. They'd be in the exact same place they've been since basically so they left Rivendell. And so I think it, it adds, it one, it like sort of makes Frodo's fall as a character, like it sort of foreshadows that a little bit better than it kind of feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit in the book. Not in like a really big way or anything, but right. it sort of like helps develop that side of the story a little bit. It makes it gives Schmiegel some fun stuff to do. Oh yeah. So the Circus
0: just, just having a great amount of fun in this movie.
1: Yeah. And and I think I think they do it in a believable way and I think it works.
0: I think it works very way. well, especially because I think the effect of Frodo going into Shelob's lair completely alone works beautifully. Yeah, I agree. It's very intense. I mean that's part of the movie is scary. I mean it's mm-hmm. frightening to watch. Yeah. And then Sam, you know, re-entering with Sting and the Evan star. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. So. Yeah,
1: no, that, that, that is one of the more controversial changes, but I think it's it sort of has the same effect that the Aragorn change does, that it's like yeah. it gives a more powerful character arc and, like, some dynamism to the movie that the movie really needs because the book doesn't have it.
0: Yeah, it worked really well. And then, again, it's their story is pretty much just the story from the book. They, after Shelob... He goes and Sam goes and saves Frodo from the Tower of Cirith Ungol. They move on through the lands of Shadow. They get to Mount Doom. Uh, Gollum comes in. You know, Frodo decides he's gonna just take the Ring. They're totally fucked. Gollum bites his finger off. Gollum gets thrown in, and then they run away. Fucking melts. Yeah. And then the only big change, obviously, at the end is that they remove the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. And do people get up in arms about this one? Not really. This one's just so obvious that people Yeah, everyone's just
1: like, yeah, you don't... Well, no, because there was... I, I, now I'm remembering there was one guy who I saw wrote, like, this huge post about how important the Scouring of the Shire was and, like, how it's, the, it needed to be there. It was just like, I sort of glanced through that and I was like, yeah, no.
0: It doesn't have Glorfindel
1: in it. I don't care.
0: It is important, but it's important... But it's important to the, the book.
1: Yeah, it's important to the book and it's not so important that it needs to be there, and the way it changes the pacing... Would, like, I think it it's really funky in the book. It would be really weird in the movie. I don't know how you could possibly put this I think
0: in it would ruin it. the entire trilogy. I would go that far, because you have this... The way the movies are paced is so perfect, where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger through three movies, 12 hours of material, until Mount Doom goes boom! Yeah. And then, it, like... What are you going to do? Do that, and they go back. It's like, all right, adventure number two.
1: Yeah, it's like, now we're going to have this weird other, like, hour tacked onto the end of the movie, where it's like, okay, we get back to the Shire, and oh, fuck, the Shire here. We have to do all this shit now and deal yeah. with that. And then the movie ends again, so it's like, that would, and we talked about this on the last one, it's like, that would not work in a movie. It's such, it's so, it's a weird way to pay something in a book. Definitely in a movie it would not work. Yeah.
0: Because pacing is so much more important in a movie than it is in a book, I feel. Oh, absolutely. I mean, pacing in a movie is arguably more important than any other narrative medium, I think. Yeah, i I'd probably agree with that. Yeah. So in any case, I think Return of the King is too big to do a point-by-point blow-through of. Yeah. Because a lot happens in this movie. So let's just take it like this. What, what's one of your favorite parts that you'd like to discuss in Return of the King? Or like, Part with
1: the, like why the fuck are the ghosts on the boat? doesn't make any goddamn sense. We already talked about this, Sean. Well, it deserves talking about again. Okay. Okay, I guess another really kind of big point, this is where they do the thing where Elrond comes to the camp
0: and gives him
1: under instead of, you know, everyone taking care of that when he's at Rivendell for the first time, like happens in the book.
0: I like how it happens in the movie. It's a great scene where... Yeah,
1: I agree. And it's good because it happens really, really really early on in the movie and it's sort of like... Helps you sort of, like, get
0: into it again. And man, is that sword cool. Because when he f- pulls it out for the first time, the frame isn't large enough to show the sword.
1: That sword's so fucking huge. I love it. That's, like, I have to imagine that would be so unwieldy. Like, I can't imagine how heavy that sword had to be in real life.
0: Well, did you know Vigo okay. Mortensen, before he shot Lord of the Rings, had no sword experience whatsoever? Yeah, but... It's he, so weird. But he... He became a master. Yeah, he became basically a
1: master swordsman. he got really dedicated to that from the bonus stuff I saw. Yeah.
0: He carried yeah. the sword around with him everywhere he went. <laughs> Which must have been well, I just can imagine like him going into a Wendy's with like a <laughs> giant sword. He probably wouldn't change. He'd be an Aragorn outfit. <laughs>
1: he does he does a thing where it's like he, he's like dripping wet and it's like it's like raining outside video like opens the door really dramatically, like pushes <laughs> it open, like sort of like sidles on it in there with the sword. It's like hamburger. Yes. No fries. <laughs> All right. I'm Aragorn, son of Arathorn. and I want a biggie.
0: Um, We were just talking about this, so I think it would be worth saying how do you feel they handle all the Shelob material in this movie? Because it's a a really kind of tough idea to do well. But I think they they really. This is where Peter Jackson's horror experience comes to the forefront. Yeah,
1: I I remember specifically there's the scene where it's when Frodo gets stabbed by Shelob's Stinger, and it's like this jump scare. Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't. Because since it's a Lord of the Rings movie, you don't see that jump scare coming. That's a damn good jump scare. It's like, really well yeah. done.
0: Well, because the, the, the great thing they do is they really fuck with you. Where You, yeah. you kind of see where Shelob is, and and so you when Frodo hears something, he turns around, you think he's going to see Shelob. He yeah. doesn't. And you think logically, okay, well he's now he's going to turn around and see Shelob, right? Mm-hmm. No. 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 And then he takes a step. Yeah, Boom! And then
1: he gets stabbed <laughs> from like, just up above the frame. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's a really well done little scary moment that you don't expect to happen because it's Nothing else in the Lord of the Rings
0: movies is like that. No, and I'm also thinking of him in the caves trying to cut through the web as he's yeah. trying to get out just desperately, and Gollum is just in the back making fun of him and just, like, throwing out insults. Oh, yeah. my God. It's it's really intense. And Andy Serkis is just having a ball with the voice.
1: Yeah.
0: And Although then, the, the one
1: thing I do have to say about She Lair is that that is the, by far the worst fucking level in the game, in the of the King <laughs> game, because you're playing as Sam... And fighting the spiders fucking sucks. Fighting spiders is not fun compared to fighting orcs. And they also do this little fucking thing where they'll, like, block your path by having all these little spiders, like, on the ground. And So if you try to walk past them, you get hurt. So you have to pick up a torch, throw, the, throw it in the middle of the spiders, and the aiming on that is fucking terrible. And you have to, like, move past it. There will be, like, more spiders. You have to do that again. The torches start going out. It's fucking bullshit. And then, then the worst part of that is that, like, every fucking minute... They play the soundbite from the movie where Frodo's like, "I already you're on time." Where he like turns on the fucking even star. They play that all the fucking time in the game. It's like,
0: what does it go out like every two seconds? Frodo, like, just leave the goddamn thing on. I, and I can believe that happens because you know the words by heart. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> all right. So in any case, I, I really like this part. Um, all the Frodo and Sam stuff is good. I, I actually also want to highlight. I think they do a great job sort of doing a visual depiction of the Land of Shadow chapter, because in the book, yeah. again, that's just 30 pages of Tolkien describing what shit Frodo and Sam are in on their yeah. way to Mount Doom. And in the movie, they make it really clear that they're they're dying. Yeah, I no, know. like,
1: they look like they're about to fucking
0: drop dead. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's the whole part where they join up with the orcs, and they're, like, in in disguise. So yeah, and
1: like, the ridiculous and, orc helmet.
0: And the ring starts trying to take over Frodo again, and mm-hmm. it's intense. Um... And uh, so let's back up before we talk about sort of yeah. all the climaxes of the movie, but all the stuff in Minas Tirith. Uh, Minas Tirith is a really another interesting sort of culture that they show because Gondor yeah. is pretty different from Rohan. It's more of a sort of, I guess I would say, defeated culture where Rohan always has kind of this fighting spirit. Gondor has yeah. been fucked for so long. Yeah, because
1: they're right on the edge, of Mordor. Yeah, so they're constantly fight, and that's one of the things that like once you get to that point. And then when you rewatch Fellowship, you understand what Bormir is talking about, where he yeah. says it's like, you're dealing with this shit every goddamn day. We need to use this ring because we are getting fucked out there.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, there's, yeah, it's intense. And Denethor is sort of our figure here. And Denethor is a bastard, but he's a bastard who you understand. Yeah. And his material, I think, is pretty compelling. I mean, this is another thing that I think a lot of people who aren't overly familiar with the books think they invented for the movie. The whole Pyre of Denethor thing, that's exactly yeah. how it goes down in the book. Yeah. Uh, he really, it's, it's that sort of soap opera-esque. Mm-hmm. But it works really well in the movie, and there's a lot of good material with Faramir in there. Yeah. But I think why I love this whole section, and sort of going into the whole siege, which is really well done, the scale of the Siege of Gondor is, I have no idea how they did that. Yeah. No earthly idea how they even edit. Like, the the editor must have gotten the footage for that and just, like, looked at it and cried. And, like, (laughs) cried for a week and then coming in and started cutting. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's
1: like, he's just like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm just going to walk, and I will never stop walking because I will have done the impossible after I ended this battle
0: scene. (laughs) In any case, um, but what I love about this whole section is really Gandalf and how well Ian McKellen drives this part of the movie. Well,
1: I like I like Gandalf and Pippin. That's what I was to say. Yeah, I like the both of them together. Yep, that's oh, great. Man, this is like this is. What, I really love Billy Boyd in this movie. He's think, great. Yeah, this, this is where Pippin really shines to me.
0: And who would have thought Ian McKellen and Billy Boyd would be just such a good dramatic kind of powerhouse? Yeah, but I always think to the scene where Ian McKellen describes what dying is like to, mm-hmm. to Pippin and. Ian McKellen is just does a beautiful job delivering that, but Billy Boyd's reactions also are, are great. Yeah.
1: Then I also I, I think about when, after Pippin becomes a steward of Gondor, and then it's like the scene where Denethor is like eating and Pippin has to start singing. And there's something like, I've never seen someone eat in such a disgusting way. <laughs> I know, it's-, it's like he's like biting the chicken and it's like just like dripping down his face. It's like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, have some tact, goddammit. You're the steward of Gondor. Like Like, come on, man. You're running I, this fucking place.
0: I know, it's, it's very sort of iconic in that way, yeah. that scene. That's a great scene. Billy Boyd's voice, in as he sings that, it's very haunting. Yeah. And it's really good. And that's funny, because that poem is a really good one, but it's from a part where they're just walking in Book 1 of Fellowship, and it's supposed to be a happy walking song, and they turn it into this sad sort that of... That is more... not a
1: happy goddamn walking song. No.
0: So, in any I case... That, that would have been
1: great, though, if, like, in Fellowship of the Ring, they're like, Pippin, like, sing a song! He starts singing that song, it's like... Dude, like, we're just walking. What the... F- <laughs> Dude, you don't have to be such a goddamn downer. Like, holy shit. Like they say,
0: Pippin, sing us a song, and Pippin just stops dead in his tracks. Oh, is behind. And they're yeah. like, Pippin, what's wrong? <laughs> and Pippin just, like, crying as he sings. No. It, it, yes, Billy Boyd's really good. I, I actually think this is something that I want to highlight about Return of the King, is how well every character in this cast of thousands... Its resolution and, and arc. Yeah. I mean, all the way down to you know, Merry and Pippin both have big arcs of sort of coming to their own as heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Denethor, Faramir, everyone. Aelwyn. Yeah. Eowyr, Faramir. Oh, I said Faramir. Yeah. But lots and lots Théodin. of people. Yeah. Theoden. The ghosts. The ghosts. were are on the boats. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, so lot kill
1: That Legolas kills gets a nice character arc.
0: Oh yeah, lots and lots of good characters. So the the again, Battle of Minas Tirith is really cool. Um, what's the ghost? Co- why? Why I've always sort of why I've tolerated the thing of the ghosts just being a Deus Ex Machina is because when they come in, the battle is not immediately over. There's still some stuff that happens, and I yeah. think part of that is Legolas's badass, bordering on cheesy, but on the right side of that line, taking down of the elephant.
1: Yeah, there's like I love how there's just like. Legolas gets like that star moment in like the final fighting scenes of each of the movies and it like slowly ramps up whereas like Fellowship it's just like totally nonchalant sort of laid back where he does a thing where like he pulls an arrow out of his uh, quiver he like stabs an Urkai, pulls it back immediately and shoots it at another Urkai, it's like right. that's a cool little moment then Two Towers it gets up a little bit more where he has a shield like throws it down the stairs was, like rides surfs it down the stairs like a fucking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and <laughs> just pops some dudes with this bow kind of cheesy works pretty well but yeah, it's like his, sort of his defining moment of that action scene. And then after the king, he fucking just kills a goddamn kill, Like, this giant elephant with, a huge, on it. You know, with a huge heart, like battle harness that's like a tower. One of the two towers that's got like a bunch of dudes on it. And he's like, fucking kills all of them. It's like, well, Jesus Christ. like, like Why haven't you been doing that shit the whole goddamn time? It still it only counts like, as
0: one. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's like, holy
0: shit. It's like, do you want to just go into Mordor and take care of that Sauron, asshole? Because you might be able to. I know. Legolas is basically a superhero by the end of these movies. Yeah. In any case, lots, lots and lots of good stuff. So, what other part of the movie do we want to talk about before we get on to the eight or nine different climaxes?
1: I'm trying to think, because there's a lot of shit in this movie.
0: Anything sort of earlier on? Um, oh, I know what I want to talk about. I think they do a great job with, I and mean, we've already hinted at it, but the final material with Theoden and Eowyn where Theoden yeah. gets killed in battle. Yeah. And, and all his speeches, too, mm-hmm. as they're riding out, is really good. And then Eowyn um, so, sort of trying to save her uncle. She's too late, but she does kill the Witch King.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's just
0: a great character fulfillment. And it speaks well to how well Miranda Otto plays that part, where, that we're that invested in her, even though she's been pretty minor up to this point. Yeah, I agree.
1: So, works then really well.
0: The Witch King of Angmar looks fucking
1: awesome. Oh, he does, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, I love the shot you know, earlier in the movie where he stops... Uh, Gandalf and breaks Gandalf's staff, and, yeah. and you see Gandalf is like powerless against this guy. Mm-hmm. But then Eowyn kills him.
1: Well, yeah, because Gandalf has a dick. So it's too bad he can't he can't fight the Witch King of Angmar. Very true. It's like a really specific fucking weakness the Witch King has. <laughs> that Maybe the Witch King was just never aware of. It's like, to, like this is so weird. It's just like, yeah, no, anyone who has a dick can't kill me. <laughs> That's my superpower.
0: At least they don't phrase it that way in the story. But that's what it amounts to. I have no no dick, whatever that line would be. (laughs) I
1: have no dick.
0: All right. That should have been the line. That would have been great. And you're a fucking robot. (laughs) We weren't Prometheus jokes and everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. All right. Back to the movie. So, the destruction of the ring at Mount Doom. How well do you think they pull this off? Because I think it's a pretty fucking awesome set of scenes.
1: Yeah, I, I do too. Because I think they, cause they, again, it's like Frodo and Sam are about to fucking drop dead. Like, I love that section of the movie where they're just, like, crawling. I can't
0: carry it for you, but I, I can, can carry, carry you! you! And everyone in the theater applauds. Yeah, it's just
1: just, uh, like, whoever's doing the makeup in that scene is like... <laughs> that guy must have seen some shit to be able to make a person look like that because it's like, god damn, they look like they're about to drop dead. And all the build up to that moment and then, it's like, and it's always kind of, it's such a strange conclusion that The Lord of the Rings has where Gollum like gets the ring and he finally has it and he sort of like dances around and then falls in. (laughs) It's just sort of a really strange way to end it. They fix it
0: in the movie. (laughs) Yeah,
1: they they don't like make it as sort of weird as like you would imagine it when you're reading the book. Yeah. But, uh, but it still is kind of just a weird conclusion that works really well, and you have no idea why that works. Well, at I well. think
0: part of it is that all the buildup is to, and they, you're right, they build it up really well to Frodo just dropping the ring in, and you expect that to happen, and you expect it to happen, and then when he gets there, he turns around, and the music, you know, hey, oh, hey, yeah. and he puts the ring on, and Sam's like, "No, you Sam, His Sam wants to for die." man! <laughs>
1: and now you're doing this? Couldn't you have done this after we left the goddamn Shire because I would have just walked home. If you made me go all the way here and now you pussy out? Fucking A, man. Fucking A.
0: And I think what's so great is that's pretty much how the audience feels too. So you can pretty much get away with anything at that point. Once you've done that dramatic inversion, all the stuff with Gollum works. And and then, I mean, just the visuals here are great. And intercutting with the battle at the Black Gate, which I should mention also has Aragorn's awesome speech. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite movie speeches ever. So, and then you know, Mount Doom goes boom. Everyone's sad. The Eagles take them away, and then all the concluding material is really good. And I think we mentioned this last week. I've always resented in terms of Warthring's complaints. I don't understand it, and I, I resent the complaint that Return of the King has five endings. It does not have five endings. It has one ending, and it's just got multiple components to it because it is a twelve-hour multifaceted story with a yeah. large ensemble cast. Um, and I think they do it really expertly. In fact, you can tell how well they put this ending together. That this is the longest stretch of film in the extended cuts that is not changed. Mm-hmm. Once the ring is destroyed, that's just it. That's the yeah. same in the theatrical and extended because they got it right the first time.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is one of those things. I think we said this on the last podcast where it makes sense why you would feel that way if you just if you just watched Return of the King sort of in a vacuum or really far away from the other movies. But when you watch the movies in quick succession, they need to end that way because this is. Because it's basically one long-ass fucking movie that it needs to have this long, drawn-out conclusion. It needs to have a long denouement because it's had a long rising action and climax.
0: Yeah. No, it needs that. And, and I, I, just, I don't get the attitude that it should have been like, you know, Mount Doom explodes, freeze cut, smash to black.
1: <laughs> it's like... Frodo went on to be really traumatized by the events and went to the Grey Havens. It's like, just do like, go go through all the lists. Basically, everyone just sits up in the Grey Havens. it
0: be like the end of the Breakfast Club. Yeah, they, exactly. They play Don't You Forget About Me. <laughs>
1: yeah, so, yeah, no, and, and, you know, the last shot is like they're in Rivendell and, and like, like Frodo wakes up and then he's like, he walks outside and you're like, <laughs> puts his fist up into the air and then it, like freeze frames and plays. Don't forget about me. That would have been oh, that's it. And, and he's got fingerless gloves on too because it's the eighties now. All of a sudden, world, of <laughs> world.
0: It depresses me that they didn't do that. Yeah, no, that should that should have been how it ended. They should have really shot a version of that with Elijah Wood just to have it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. All right, so anyway, uh, a lot of good stuff here in the in the end of Return of the King. So they get back to Rivendell. There's that great scene where Frodo sees everyone again. They're all laughing, laughing and happy. And yeah, it just like makes
1: you realize, is like, fuck, dude. Frodo
0: hasn't seen like anyone other than
1: Sam and Schmiegel and Faramir for a long ass time. Yeah, It is like it's a long time coming seeing some other people for him.
0: But I also like the realization that he would have no concept that Gandalf was still alive. Yeah, and no, it, that's true. They kind of gloss over it, but yeah. I, they have to. I mean, you you it would be weird if they stopped and had a scene yes. where he's <laughs> like, what?
1: No one told What called the me. fuck, man? Yeah. You could have called. Yeah. Send an eagle. Yeah. I'm just like, he did the thing with the moths, you can do that with me too. Yeah.
0: Gandalf <laughs> is alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. awesome. So a lot, a lot of good stuff there, and then the scene at Minas Tirith, which is the coronation of Aragorn, which is sort of... This This is an interesting scene. I think this is the moment where a lot of people who don't who complain about the endings, this is where they think it should have ended. It's just on Minas Tirith, because I think a lot of people do have this perception that Aragorn was the hero, because he is sort of the traditional heroic figure, yeah. and this is his traditional big ending. But I would say Peter Jackson is very clever in how he focuses this scene, is in that Aragorn gets his moment to be king and kiss Arwen again and all yeah. that, but then what, how does the scene end? It's about the hobbits. Yeah. You, you bow to no one. That me. is such a great scene. Yeah. I remember that's the scene they showed at the Oscars when it won Best Picture and it's just, it's such a powerful moment yeah, of, of everyone bowing down to them.
1: That one hits you pretty goddamn hard when you watch those movies like back to back. Yeah. It's, it's like, they've yeah, earned it. No, they've, you bow to fucking no one. Yeah. Except for, for you kind of chicken that at the end. It's like, you can <laughs> like half bow, but.
0: Bow to Sam. Just turn him bow to Sam. Yeah. He, he deserves, give him 50 bucks or something. Yeah. All right, and then you go back to the Shire and sort of just you have the final material building up to him going to the Grey Havens. You get to see Ian Holm as Bilbo again in Mm -hmm. old-person makeup. And the Grey Haven scene is really good, and there's a lot of fun production stories from that where they actually shot that like, six months from the end of the shoot, so it was by no means the last scene that they performed, but they knew this was the goodbye scene, and so they had to get in this this really sad, emotional state, and it was really rough, and they all hated Sean Astin for it, because he forgot to put his, like, coat on, and so they had to reshoot the entire scene a second day, after the first day, and it, like, it was just, there were all these different issues. Yeah. It's really funny. So, if you can find that part on the bonus features of Return of the King, it's fun to watch, but Greyhaven scene is great, and I am very glad and have always been very glad that they did do they add you know, they went thirty seconds beyond that and did the ending with I'm back.
1: Yeah, they they, they finished it with Sam coming back to his house where he's got like Rosie and his kid. Yeah. It's like yeah, that's
0: That's what Lord of the Rings is about. Yeah, and
1: that's and like again, like you said, a lot of people feel that Aragorn was the hero. It's like no, no. I he's mean, he, a hero. He definitely. is a hero, but the like the main so, like, the true protagonist, I feel, of the story is Sam. I think most people sort of come yeah. to that conclusion if they're really into Lord of the Rings. And so it's like, of course you have to end it there. Like, you can't you yeah. you can't, you can't just, like... I think there's, there's there are two places you could have ended the movie. It's like, one, they get on the eagles, and you just end it there. Leave it ambiguous to what ultimately happens. That would have been okay. But it's like, if you didn't want to have a bunch of endings. Or you end it with Sam. It's like, those are the two. You couldn't have done either, like have ended it at Rivendell.
0: You couldn't have ended it with Coronation of the Kings. Like, no. Right. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you something that when sure. I saw the movie for the first time, you know, there's that shot when Frodo and Sam are out on that rock and they're just lying there and it fades to black for a moment and then it comes back in and it's playing the elvish music and the eagles come pick them up. Mm-hmm. But when I saw this for the first time I was really scared they were going to end it at that fade to black on the rock. Like, I got, I was like, wait, what? And I'm like, there's so much left! What are they doing? And then they like come back and I'm like, oh, thank God. But I still get that feeling sometimes, because yeah. I just remember how I felt the first time I saw it. Yeah. It's kind of a long fade to black.
1: <laughs> it is, yeah.
0: No, it definitely is. But, although
1: that that reminds me, my, and this isn't just the movie, it's this extends to the book, my biggest pet peeve is people who think they're really fucking smart and say this, like, Dude, why didn't they just ride the you. eagles to Mordor? You fucking... Yeah, that would have really worked. Let's just get on a fucking eagle and fly all the way to Mordor where there's this big goddamn power with a huge-ass flaming eye and the most powerful sorcerer in all of history fucking there. He is not going to notice the object of his desire riding on a fucking giant eagle through the sky towards him. He's got thousands and thousands and thousands of orcish archers. He's got nine ring race with oh. big-ass dragon things. You'd be fucking dead in a second if you tried to do that. The whole goddamn point is to have this small team of cavort... Like, it's basically a special operations team. It's like, we got, like, these nine fucking dudes or... Okay, like... We've got explosives. Yeah, we got we've got, got, we got five dudes who are really good at what they're doing. Four really short people and I don't know why most of them are there. We've got the one dude who's carrying the ring. He's kind of important. But it's like, we got these nine dudes taking care of this so that they can go in... Covertly and take care of this without Sauron figuring it out, because the most powerful thing Sauron has is his information gathering abilities. Because he's a huge fucking eye. So it's like that's what we're going to do, because he can find out where the Ring is very, very easily. Always hate it when people people bring that up all the goddamn time. With the I think they're so the smug
0: rings. about it. Like, yeah. think like they think like,
1: like they think like they figured out this like big secret. Like it's like why didn't they just get on the eagles at the beginning, and just fly over to Mortar? It's like shut the, you have no fucking clue what you're talking about. And they all, they're, you're right, they're always smug assholes about it. You yeah. think they're really fucking smart. It's like, can you, you, you don't know what a plot hole is, asshole. Sit the fuck down. Yeah. It's like.
0: Well, and also, if you read, actually, about the history, the eagles, you can't just eagles, call the eagles. Yeah, the eagles wouldn't have just been
1: like, yeah, sure, fuck it, we'll just, we'll fly into the heart of, like, death when the most powerful place in the entire world is right off the bat for you. They've,
0: all right, so I think that's that's all the movies. Yeah. All right, so we should probably, at this point, talk about one of the most important parts, which is really just go character by character and talk about how we view these performances and these interpretations, especially because some of them do differ from the books. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at that. So let's start, obviously, with our main character, Frodo Baggins, Elijah yeah. Wood. Elijah Wood's really good in these movies. I agree. I can't stress that enough. He does not get enough, good, enough credit, but he is really good in these movies, and... Yeah, and, and he respect. gets
1: a really hard role to play because yeah. Frodo's entire conflict is completely internal. Yeah, it's just him trying his hardest not to put the ring on.
0: Yeah, and that's and he makes it dynamic. Way. Yeah, he makes it interesting. He takes a very literary concept and makes it cinematic, and he's he's very. Compelling he's got a good charisma he's I think he's got a movie star presence you need for this kind of thing, but yeah. in a different sort of way,
1: yeah, I agree,
0: obviously Viggo Mortensen is the movie star in these movies, mm-hmm. but Frodo still has this quality in you know, Elijah Wood that i've I've always been a little sad that Elijah Wood was sort of pigeonholed after the Lord of the Rings. I mean, I was kind of bound to happen, mm-hmm. but he's obviously done a lot of good work in various things, but when I see him in things, Elijah Wood is such a good actor i like I watched this movie. This this indie film from Sundance. It was called Celeste and Jesse Forever. It's with Rashida Jones and, Addy, and uh, Adam Sandberg. Andy Sandberg. I don't know that guy's name. Uh, Andy Sandberg, I'm pretty sure. Well okay. As well as, yeah. It's a really good sort of... It's not a romantic comedy. It's a romantic drama. It's very serious. It's got some humor, but it's a pretty serious movie. But it's very good. And Elijah Wood just has this small part as Rashida Jones' boss. And he's he's in the movie for probably all of ten minutes combined. But he's so good. And I was like, I want more Elijah Wood. I mean, someday I'm going to sit down and Can watch. You want that. some more wood, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I, Jonathan just needs more wood. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. But no, I, I, I'm going to watch that show Wilfred on FX someday because I just he's a good actor and I like watching him work. And uh, you know, I, I, sort of wish he, um, sort of had more opportunities in big movies like this to do sort of starring roles and maybe more dramatic material because I think that's the interesting part here is that he does stuff that would serve him well in a very dramatic capacity in other movies because it's yeah. that kind of acting. So. I agree. Um, would you say this photo is any different from the book in any major ways? This is pretty much how...
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty close. I mean, anything else would just be sort of your own interpretation of what happens. Yeah. Like, there's nothing really big that changes other than the... The
0: age is actually the only...
1: Oh, so, yeah, there's that.
0: Although, but, but, than, but, but then the, also, like, the, like how you translate Hobbit
1: age into human age is sort of, like, ambiguous. Right. It's Yeah, it's not... I mean, the biggest change to me is the scene that we already talked about where he, like, fuck off, Sam, basically. Yeah. That's... talk about
0: that. They, they emphasize the darker elements of him a little bit more, and obviously I think I think you could say that Frodo gets more chances to be outright heroic in the book, but it, translating it to a cinematic form, if you did that outright and had Frodo pull out a sword and start killing people, yeah, I don't know if it would feel right. It, I, it wouldn't, I agree.
1: I don't...
0: It wouldn't hammer home the point they need to make that's in the book about the ring. Yeah. So I think they do it very well.
1: I think Aragorn's kind of got the stabbing dudes thing down. Oh, yeah. Got that filled up for our movie
0: so continuing with hobbits sean astin is sam another actor who sean astin is phenomenal in these films he's the heart and soul he's so great he embodies sam in every way shape or form i can't think of a single way he's different from sam in the books that just is sam it's like sort of like how ian mckellen is gandalf that's just like sean astin was like born from the pages of lord of the rings to be samwise Gamgee.
1: Yeah, except for the fact that he doesn't actually have really pretty feet and he's not actually really small. Right. But if if only then, then he literally yeah. would be Samwise Gandhi. Yeah,
0: yeah, pretty much. Uh he's damn good. Yeah. And I feel like there's not much to say there's, about yeah, him. Yeah, they're
1: really he, he's just really fucking good as Sam. Especially
0: yeah. in Return of the King, in the last act. Um, yeah, where
1: he he has a lot more to sort of do because he yeah. that's when he really does just straight up become the main character because Frodo's been captured.
0: Yeah. And I think we also need to talk about how these two characters work in unison, is that f- as good as Sean Aston and Elijah Wood are on their own, their performances are largely defined by each other, and I yeah. think their chemistry is phenomenal, and the work they do just playing off one another. I always think of the scene where they're on Mount Doom. It's, it's right before he gives the, you know, I can't carry you, or I, can, I can't carry you, but I can carry yeah. you line. He, you know, they, they go back and forth talking about strawberries and the shire and the smell yeah. of grass. It's so, so well done. And... and Again, I mean, they're just just—they—they very much commit to the sort of darkness of the parts at that point. Yeah. So really good stuff. And I think as long as... We should probably go in sort of thematic chunks here, because the other actor those two work with primarily is Andy Serkis as Gollum. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the time to talk about Gollum. Cheer. And, again, this is another thing that you probably forget today, because this is such a common technique, the one that was used to build, bring Gollum to life. There had never been anything remotely like Gollum. In film before now. there had
1: been the monstrosity that is Dr. Jekyll,
0: but he wasn't—he wasn't motion captured. Yeah, he wasn't defined was, by. Was, the,
1: I think he was like a fully CGI right. character who's like talking and interacting with people, and it's terrifying,
0: right? You would turn in very different ways what?
1: than Gollum can be terrifying.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, just from a technical level. I have. I still have no idea how they did Gollum that well. Yeah,
1: especially because it's it's one of those things that makes it feel like the movies are not old, is that it doesn't feel like Gollum, like the tech behind Gollum has aged, which is no. weird, because you would... Ex- like, I always would expect when I would go back and watch Lord of the Rings, it's like, Gollum's gonna look pretty rough. Nope. Still looks like maybe still the best CGI character I've seen. Like, he just, like... occupies that space in a way I can't think any other CGI character does other than in like just full CGI movies like Toy Story or something like that.
0: I I think the only thing that rivals it is other Andy Serkis CGI characters, like King Kong or... Yeah, no, King
1: Kong in King Kong is really
0: good, too. Right, or Caesar in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which Andy Serkis is awesome in that movie. Um, But in any case, Gollum, yeah, it's just he... I I mean, I have the Blu-rays, and he Mm -hmm. looks perfect on the Blu-rays now. It's like he, he just that the the people at Weta the work they went to to making him just fit in that environment and I think part of it is how strongly Andy Serkis worked with them both on set and then on the mocap stage I mean he did yeah. every scene like eight different times for them yeah and so they just this was all about physical performance and I think it is still sad that those sorts of performances are not recognized in the same way as a live action one because Andy Serkis did just as much for these it's movies the, yeah I would say more, more. more like, yeah. Yeah, and I know you know Peter Jackson fought very hard back in 2003 for Andy Serkis to get an Oscar nomination for *Return of the King*, and they just kept saying he was disqualified because it was CGI. That's just stupid.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 technically CGI, but it is his performance. It's not like it's some like digital animator made the Gollum performance. The yeah. Andy Serkis is
0: that character, and you do have to give props to Weta Workshop for their design of Gollum is great. It's like I, I did not imagine Gollum that way when I read the books, but once you see him that way, it's hard to imagine him any other way. yeah
1: other than the Hobbit
0: right, and yeah. the Hobbit because he's described very differently yeah more of a water creature
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it's yeah, it's definitely interesting and it, what will be interesting with the Hobbit movie is seeing how the Gollum model looks today because yeah, that's true. It doesn't feel like there's room for improvement, but I assume it's going to look better
1: yeah that's I don't know how, like, maybe
0: maybe just being in 3D and things like that is what maybe yeah. the change will be. Hmm. So, you know, Gollum will leap out at the screen and, like, flip off the audience. Yeah. In three dimensions. <laughs> no, but yeah, Andy Circus is great. The I, I I imagine he shredded his vocal cords to shit during this movie. Did they,
1: I mean, they do talk about that a lot in, like, the, the bonus materials. He had, like... Gollum like, juice. Gollum juice, yeah, that he'd have to drink that, like, really helped his throat and stuff. I always remember... there's He has, like, the one story about the... I think it's right before the scene with, like, the potatoes and all that where he's, like, in a river, like crawling around, and like, there's trying to get footage. of him, like, in... He's in, like, the full get-up with, like, the... He's in, like, this little, like, suit thing. And yeah. he's, like, in this river. It's like, dude, you're gonna fucking die. Like, that you should not be in, like, 7 o'clock in the morning in this, like,
0: skin-tight suit. Well, and there's rocks, crawling, rocks everywhere. Yeah, crawling
1: around in this river with, like, rocks and, like, this ice-cold water. It's like, dude, this dick cannot be good for you. Jesus no. Christ.
0: Well, here's what I was gonna say is that I, I did remember what the main technological difference is now between Gollum in 2002 between Gollum and 2012, is that... 10 years. Well, is that Gollum, back then, what they had to do is that they would shoot every scene in the movie that had Gollum twice. Once with Andy Serkis in there with Frodo and Sam as a guide, and he would be in the white costume. Yeah. And then the actual takes that are in the movie, he would be taken out, and Frodo and Sam would do what they rehearsed with him just before. Yeah. And then he would have to come back to the post-production stages in Wellington and do it all on a mocap stage. Well, now the motion capture technology has come so far that you can do motion capture live wherever you're shooting. And so Gollum and Martin Freeman, for instance, in The Hobbit, it's just Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis, and Andy Serkis is in the mocap suit, and they just shot it on the sets for Riddles of the Dark. So it simplifies the process and probably makes it even better because there's no yeah. barrier to the performing. I know Martin Freeman has said it it made it really freeing to just know that's Gollum and, and I know yeah. who Andy Serkis is, and we can just uh, you know act off one another. So. But Gollum really well done, and this is another one where their interpretation of Gollum is pretty much what Tolkien wrote.
1: Yeah, I think that I feel like they do—they do like the sort of the schizophrenic yeah. side of it. They really play that up. They it's do not so much in the book, but
0: um, one of the scenes—I
1: think it's really well done. Though.
0: It's really well done, and one of the scenes that kind of established that is in the Two Towers, where the first time you really get a sense of his schizophrenia. And what they do—it's this really simple camera trick where Gollum's talking. And then Smeagol talks, and they just shift the perspective. Yeah. Like he would shoot any normal dialogue scene, mm-hmm. but he's in the same spot. Yeah. It's so simple, no one thought of it until yeah. that. And now people do that all the time for things like this. It's a very common shot, and you probably wouldn't know it, but Peter Jackson did not direct that scene. Oh, really? That was Fran Walsh's wife, who you never hear on the bonus features because she doesn't do interviews. But it was a second unit scene, and they, the, the, all their like second unit directors were out, and so they said, oh, Fran, go do that with Andy. And she's just like, oh, well, put it here, put it here. And they said it's because she was not a director. She had that idea. No director would have thought of that. It was too simple. But she was just like, oh, I, I know how to do it. Here, 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 here. <laughs> so it makes sense. That woman deserves an Oscar. Yes. Good work. So we've talked about Gollum. Let's go back to the other hobbits. We're all yeah. talking about sort of small people right now. I told them was a hobbit yes. at one
1: point in time.
0: So Mary and Pippin kind of always have to go together. Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd. Yeah. And they are substantially different from the books because Mary and Pippin are not really jokesters in the book.
1: Yeah, they're not so much the crazy troublemakers. Yeah,
0: But they also don't really have any character in the books. So you had to do something with yeah, them. Yeah,
1: there really isn't that much that distinguishes Mary and Pippin no. from each other. They're sort of like and the two hobbits. They're kind of like Glorfindel to me in the books. It's just like, it's like character. Yeah. Just, they're there.
0: But I love them in the movie. Everyone yeah. loves them in the movie. They're great.
1: Yeah, they they definitely just like really strengthen up their characterization and make them really compelling, and then that also gives them a, a place to start so that they have a place to now end where they've evolved over the course of the
0: movies. Yeah, absolutely, and and I like that you know they don't they also don't just give them identical character traits. Mary yeah. and Pippin, you know, Mary is much more sort of forceful. Pippin is a little more cowardly. Yeah, um, they're very good friends, obviously, and that's very true from the books, but. You know, they're a little, they're sort of like type A, type B in some ways. Yeah,
1: it, it's just like if you watch the Ralph Basky animated version, Mary and Pippin are completely, like, they're the same. They're like the same goddamn person. I, every time I go back and watch that, I can't tell which one's which. I'm just like, ah, that one might be Mary? I'm pretty sure that's a Pippin line, so that guy's got to be Pippin. Yeah. So I'm thinking. He's got slightly darker hair, so that must make him Mary.
0: <laughs> no, but anything to say. We already talked about how good Billy Boyd in his Return of the King uh, Dominic yeah. Monaghan really gets his moments to shine, I would say, probably in in Fellowship and Two Towers. Yeah, particularly like his
1: stuff with Treebeard and Two Towers yeah. is really good.
0: It is, and he has that good speech to the ends at the end of Two Towers. Yeah. Um, and Dominic Monaghan is, is actually, of all the Hobbits, probably has had the most notable career since then on TV, because yeah. he was on Lost, he's been on some other shows, so... Yeah, it's yeah. it's funny because I obviously was a big Lost fan and I liked his character on Lost a lot. Dominic Monaghan was good on that show. I never connected that those are the same people, Charlie on Lost and, and I, Mary. I did
1: immediately when I started watching okay. Lost. I was like, oh god, it's Mary, I can't, I can't, I can't watch this character because that's just Dominic Monaghan. He's just married to me so I was like oh god I can't watch this character this is, and this is going it's to just, keep, can take me out of all of his episodes
0: it's just for me because he has the Australian accent in Lost he's got a yeah I mean he does uh,
1: I mean he's really good and it's like he's really physically different but I noticed it just immediately I was like fuck I wish I hadn't noticed that because I yeah. no, I can't watch his episodes
0: well and now Evangeline Lilly from Lost will be in the Hobbit film too oh uh, yeah so I'll come back well I don't that.
1: think it'll it will it does work the other way for me right Lord of the Rings takes the precedence.
0: Uh, absolutely. All right. So those are all the hobbits, except for one, the most important hobbit of them all, Bilbo Baggins. Oh,
1: okay, yeah.
0: Greatest little th- hobbit of them all.
1: I thought it was the proud feet. They're, they're the <laughs> <best>. proud foot.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, all their way around. Anyway, yeah, it is the other way around. I made the joke
1: first already implicitly saying proud feet.
0: I know. Ian Holm is Bilbo. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely.
1: <laughs> and mean, it, it gives Martin Freeman something to live up to in The Hobbit. I know, because He's so
0: fucking good as he's Bilbo. He's so good as Bilbo, and it's this funny thing where when you hear Martin Freeman is playing Bilbo, you think, that's perfect, but and I like that you have Ian Holm, though, so Martin Freeman, like you said, has something to work up to, yeah. because Martin Freeman as Bilbo is such obvious casting, mm-hmm. it's good obvious, yeah. it's just like, who else would do it? Mm-hmm. Martin Freeman has to be on Bilbo, but because he has Ian Holm, I think he does have something to strive for rather than just being Martin Freeman. Yeah that'll work yeah. really well. And, and Ian Holm, man, he just, he makes the first, you know, half hour of Fellowship of the Ring click for me. He's so yeah, good in those Yeah, especially scenes.
1: him and Ian McKellen. Yeah. Like, their relationship is so well-defined, like, immediately. Yeah, they sketch
0: it really well just through their dialogue together.
1: Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, that's one of those scenes that's, like, I'm really excited to, after watching The Hobbit, just watching the beginning of Fellowship and sort of, like, seeing how that feels recontextualized with having seen their version of The Hobbit now.
0: Yes, I'm definitely excited. And I'm excited to see Ian Holm back just for like the opening yeah. scenes in the Hobbit movie. That'll just be nice. Yeah. Because he's, he's damn good. And I think, had they made the Hobbit sooner, they could possibly have done it with Ian Holm if they could have done young person makeup or something. I don't think maybe a the right think, decision. But yeah, I
1: don't think that would work that well. I, mean, no, I would it's... not advise like having your main protagonist character being a character in makeup that's like that heavy.
0: Oh, I agree. Yeah. I'm just saying, he, he is that good. Yeah, no, I agree. So, Ian Holm, awesome. And as long as we're talking about this section of the movie, Ian McKellen as Gandalf.
1: Gandalf the Grey.
0: I've said it before, I'll say it again. Gandalf the Grey is my... And Gandalf the White, just Gandalf, is my favorite screen character of all time. Ian McKellen, my favorite screen performance of all time. No contest. I just love Ian McKellen as Gandalf so much. I love Gandalf in the books more than I can say but Ian McKellen makes him even better. I mean, he, he is Gandalf, just for one. It's just, yeah. He is Gandalf the Grey and then Gandalf the White, just perfectly, but then he adds for me so much to the character, sort of this sense of weariness and, and sort of wisdom and experience mm-hmm. that you just sort of see it in him, that he can be very sort of jovial and have all this life to him, but at the same time, he's lived through stuff, and you kind of see yeah, it in you, his you, eyes.
1: it's one of those characters where, it's like where the character has lived for thousands of years, and you get that sense through the performance. Like, yeah. Yeah. Ian McKellen's fucking awesome as Gandalf. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: that's my most excited thing about The Hobbit is that The Hobbit has a good amount of Gandalf in it and so we're going to get a good amount of Ian McKellen and I'm very psyched. Yeah. I had a clip online the other day of, of Gandalf giving Bilbo sting after they raid the trolls. It's just like 40 seconds but just it's him giving him Bilbo a little speech about courage. I'm like, oh, I'm going to love this movie.
1: Yeah, but the Gandalf after the scene that inspired every RPG, it's like, it's the loot drop. There we go. It's like, you got your plus five sword.
0: <laughs> Alright, so... But then
1: then they have to go identify it, too. It's like, that's just... I love... That's what I love about reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's just like, this has created every single fantasy RPG of all time, and I can see where they got the ideas for every single fantasy RPG of all time, just like, every single page. There's a new one, here's the loot drop, oh, but you don't know what the magic loot is, we so have to go get this dude to identify it to find out what it does. It's like... Yep, there we go.
0: It's great. So, anything else to say about Gandalf?
1: It's Gandalf.
0: His his best scene is Casa Doom. You'd say.
1: Yeah, I get like I, I wasn't thinking about what his best scene would be. I no it, his best scene is them opening the door. That's his best scene. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the that's like because it's just when he's like becomes a really irritated old man. I like when Gandalf does that. Also when Pippin drops the yeah. body into the well.
0: It's like, anytime he chastises someone else. Throw your serpent next time and rid us of your stupidity. There's just a lot of crazy stuff of him chastising Pippin across all three films. It's wonderful. Yeah. So, in any case. um, Yes, as follows, we're talking about very old characters. Should we go to Hugo weaving as Elrod?
1: Sure, if that's how we're segueing these. (laughs) I thought we would have a more organized way of doing it, but fuck it. No, I
0: know where we're going from here. It's, It's all mapped out in my head. Okay, good. All right. Okay. Elrond, Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving is a god. He's awesome. Yep, that's... (laughs) Every movie would be better with Hugo Weaving in it. I cannot think of a movie that would not be better with Hugo Weaving in it.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to... He did the voice of Megatron in the Transformers movies, and that was... Couldn't have done without that, but... But he didn't negative. I mean, yeah. But I mean, Frank Welker—you could just got Frank. That's Frank.
0: my point. But let's say, let's say Hugo Weaving was actually in them. Like, if
1: oh, if this, he was playing a character, fuck yeah. Like, if he was just like that, Hugo Weaving just walks on set. He's not even character. He's just Hugo Weaving. And he yeah. just walks on set. Fuck
0: yeah, right. And any movie, yeah. Every movie. I one of my favorite. One of the reasons Cloud Atlas is my favorite film of 2012 so far is you've just got Hugo Weaving popping in in every story as the, that story's incarnation of the devil. It's great. And and then the Tom Hanks story at the like end of time, he's playing like this weird goblin monster. Awesome. So Hugo Weaving, he's the man, and that's just that's again, it's just Elrod. I mean, there's yeah. some characters in this movie we're gonna talk about who have you know, they've they've got new arcs or they're changed. But some of these they just took them from the book and found an actor who is the embodiment of that. Yeah. And Hugo Weaving, to me, is that where obviously maybe he's a little more hard edged than yeah, Elrod it, is in the book. He feels
1: more like like to me Elrond in Lord of the Rings is a little bit different to Elrond in the Hobbit yeah. mostly because he's a lot more sort of involved with all like the council and everything so it's like Hugo Weaving is very much Elrond from Lord of the Rings to me. It'll be interesting to see him being Elrond in the Hobbit, in the context of the Hobbit, where it's like all this shit is not necessarily like piling on right now and just like welcoming a bunch of dwarves and his old friend Gandalf into yeah. his home.
0: And I actually think he can play that. Just yeah, fine. I think he'll be able to play that too. it would just be cool to see
1: yeah. because it's a very different side of the character.
0: Absolutely. But he's got a lot of really standout scenes in the trilogy. I always think back to In the Two Towers, it's a moment you forget even happens, but it's a really nice sort of. Ethereal moment where he and Galadriel have this sort of telepathic conversation, and they're just sort of these are two people who have lived forever since yeah. the dawn of Middle Earth, and now they know Middle Earth may be coming to a close. It's like, and it's just mm-hmm. these people who have experienced time, and yeah. they're talking about this. And just him and Kate and Blanchett just having that duality is, is wonderful. Yeah, so Elrond's an elf. Okay, L- we, L- already, L- we already talked about Galadriel who's another so L- we're
1: gonna talk about naturally
0: more. next
1: is Glorfindel
0: Glorfindel yes Glorfindel the greatest character left out of Lord of the Rings yeah I don't. how the
1: fuck did they cut out Glorfindel I know it's Glorfindel
0: it, it goes never forgive Peter Jackson it goes Glorfindel Gandalf Optimus Prime on list of all time great fictional characters yeah pretty yeah. much right Glorfindel's right up there at the top yeah like,
1: I mean, and it's, it's not even just like he barely edges out Gandalf, it's like he's like miles
0: ahead. Yeah. It's, it's too bad. But, you know, Elves. Well, you know, is an elf, so. So Arwen's an elf. She's also Elrond's daughter, so there's a very obvious connection there. Why did Elrondi- he say that way?
1: <laughs> Why did you go to Elf if you're going to go to. I thought you were going to go to, like, Legolas or something. We're getting there, Sean. Quit spoiling it. God, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Arwen presumably wears socks. You know who else wears socks? (laughs) Gimli! I actually don't think we see
0: Arwen wearing socks.
1: Presumably she does. At some point, I would imagine. We're 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 going to pause
0: the podcast, watch the whole trilogy, examine this, frame by frame. Yeah, now,
1: I'm trying. No. To, I'm trying to come up with like the most like ridiculous segue. I'm no, trying I'm trying to I somehow back out. I'm trying to somehow connect the fact that Arwen is played by Liv Tyler, who's the daughter of Steve Tyler, who's the lead singer for Aerosmith. I can't think of how I could connect Aerosmith anywhere else to Lord of the Rings. It's fucking hard.
0: Um, in any case, we like Liv Tyler as Arwen.
1: If, God, we already did Gollum because I could do Aerosmith is a rock band. Led Zeppelin is also a rock band. Led Zeppelin <laughs> made songs about Lord of the Rings, one of which features Gollum in the lyrics. Now we can talk about, let's go back and talk about Gollum again.
0: All right, what do you think about Gollum, Sean? Gollum's awesome. Okay. All right, back go. to Arwen. What do you think about Liv Tyler as Arwen? We already mentioned her. She's a bit. the
1: daughter of Steve Tyler, lead vocalist for Aerosmith, so awesome. Okay. She's. This movie could have used a bit more Aerosmith, though. Okay. Like, just straight up in the soundtrack.
0: <laughs> like, at the end, it would have just played some Aerosmith as they, yeah. like, smash cut to black. Yeah. Sounds good. Yep. I'm imagining sweet emotion at the end of the movie. It's <laughs> a sweet, sweet emotion playing when Frodo is in bed at Rivendell and all the characters come back in? Yeah. Somebody make that on YouTube, okay? Yeah. All right. Anyway, Liv Tyler, she's good. She's, she, again, she's basically just an elf.
2: Yeah.
0: So, she's cool. She's, it's, it's funny because in real life she has this very sort of high-pitched fairy voice and she's got sort of a deeper, like, like, sort of... Mystical voice in one yeah. of the rings, and it works really well. Yeah, but you are right, Arwen is indeed an elf. Yep. Legolas is also an elf, and he's probably he's our a different
1: f- kind of elf. He's a Mirkwood elf, he
0: is a Mirkwood elf, and he's our sort of final significant elf character to talk about in the series for now. What about Haldir? What about Kelleborn, who's adored for to talk like about a second? Those, those people, okay. we're focusing on main characters, but Legolas, Orlando Bloom, what do you think of Legolas?
1: I like him, I like him, I think, I think he's badass. Yeah, I mean, again. I, I think they get kind of cheesy with the whole, like, he, like, the sliding down the stairs and the killing the Moomin' Kill by himself. They're they're cool, but I could maybe do without them. Like, okay. they, they, I don't know why they just, they always give Legolas the cheesiest fucking stuff.
0: Yeah, well, uh, this is sort of another situation similar to Liv Tyler, where I don't think Orlando Bloom has been great in a lot of other stuff. He's, yeah. He's been very good in, in certain aspects, um... And I actually think he can do more than most people trust him with. Like, I think there's a couple of key performances from him, especially in Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven, where he's great in that movie. But Peter Jackson gets really good work out of him here. He really embodies Legolas. And it's another character where, partially because Legolas is pretty thinly sketched in Lord of the Rings, it just it feels like that's Legolas. You can just accept it really quickly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and he, he looks the part. He looks very elfish. Yeah,
1: Glagolos is also really fucking cheap in the video games because he gets power ups that allows the arrows to shoot through people. Yeah, and it's like once that happens, it's like, well, what is the point of playing anyone else?
0: Well, anyway, we've been talking about elves.
1: Yes, we have.
0: And you know who elves had an alliance with? A last alliance with once upon a time were men. Okay, I, th-
1: I thought you were going to try to find a way to segue Legolas into Gimli
0: because that would be the, ne-
1: that'd be the most logical transition. What I was going to say—they paired together.
0: Well, what I was going to say is that elves hate dwarves, but they—the irony is that they learn to love each other. Legolas and Gimli. So yeah, we talk about Gimli, but there's more male, like men characters to talk about. and I don't know how we get from dwarves to men. So, do you know who's a lot shorter than other people? <laughs> dwarves are, and the other people are men. It works. So who do you want to talk about next? I don't know. Did, did you just... We should probably talk about Gimli because Gimli and Legolas are paired together. Okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> did you just have... Use our conversation about your past segue to segue into Gimli? Yes. Jesus Christ, man.
0: So Gimli. What Gimli. You... John Rhys-Davies is the shit. He's awesome.
1: Yeah. I love John Rhys-Davies in anything, but especially as Gimli. And, and one of like, the interesting things about all these characters is that they're in... Like particularly like Gimli and Legolas, is that they're in a lot of makeup. Well, more Gimli than Legolas, but it's like, you know, like, I recognize that Gimli is John Rhys-Davies mostly because of the voice, but it's like, they they do so much to make him feel like a dwarf with, like, the beard and, like, using forced perspective to make him seem really small. That it's well, like and
0: actually, for the most part, they don't do forced perspective on Gimli. When you see Gimli in, like, long shots, it's usually someone else. Yeah, John Rhys-Davies is not in the movies as much as you think. It's kind of funny, because any shot of sort of Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn in action, John Rhys-Davies wasn't there for that. And it's kind of funny to think about that. Yeah. But, but John Rhys-Davies very, just does a great job with the character. Yeah. And he has he has heavy prosthetics on his face, too. Yeah,
1: he's got like the fucking nose and everything.
0: And the whole face. And he hated it so much that there's this great shot in the uh, extended cut bonus features where... At the end, the gift they give him for have, having been on Lord of the Rings was his last prosthetic. Yeah. And he takes it and chucks it into the fire. <laughs> He's so mad. And he uh, he was offered to return for The Hobbit, have like a cameo somewhere in the trilogy. And he denied because he didn't want to do the prosthetics again. <laughs> I can't blame him. Yeah. But man, John Rhys-Davies is so awesome. And, and how he does that voice, it's just so cool. Yeah. But Gimli's great. And he and Orlando Bloom have good chemistry, I think. They sketch that relationship pretty well. Yep. It was always, always one of my favorite parts of the book is how they become friends. Yeah. And they become friends in a cool way here, too. They still have their competition of how many people they can kill, which yeah. is pretty macabre when you think of it.
1: Yeah, especially the, with after the battle at Helm's Deep and he's got his fucking, like, axe. It's like, it's a great fucking... It's really hilarious scene where he's got his axe embedded in the uruk nervous system and it's sort of, like, jerking around and Legolas thinks it's still alive. It's like, when you think about it, that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> it's like, he's jerking around because you fucking have your axe in his
0: spine, and you're moving it. It's great. Yeah. So, John Reese Rhys- of- davies oh. plays Gimli. You know who else he plays? Uh, that's exactly the, that was what I was going to
1: say. Well, high he plays, five.
0: plays Treebeard. He that does. Was a
1: decent, that, was a, that was a segue. All right. There we
0: go. And you know who Treebeard could stomp on? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, we haven't even
1: fucking talked about Treebeard yet. Well, slow the fuck down, man. I'm excited. I had a good one. I'm sure you didn't. I uh, don't. No, okay, no. so so Treebeard. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's it weird because I did not realize for the longest time that Johnnie's Davies also voiced Treebeard you know, until I true. watched the special things, and I was like, oh shit, yeah, no, he does. Yeah, no, that is John Rees-Davies. It's like it's not even like his voice
0: is that different. It's a really good performance, but it's like for some yeah. reason I never connected that. I think it works really well. It's yeah. it's it's. I I assume it's just something where Peter Jackson was sort of like they hadn't. It's always one of the last things they had to cast because it's yeah. all post production work, and he probably just heard John Reese Davies and he's like, oh, we should just do a little different voice for that and yeah. do Treebeard, and it works really well. And you never really connect it when you're watching with Gimli. Yeah, exactly.
1: And the, the, the one thing I love about like his voice with Treebeard is like he like. How he like paces his voice with like it starts like we've decided, and then he'll like take like a really big breath and it's like he always kind yeah. of like starts off with kind of high and then like ends with like this like really out of breath. I just yeah. love the pacing of that voice It's
0: great because it's something you think they would cut for the movies is the way Treebeard talks because that's how they describe him talking in the book, yeah uh very slowly, but they really commit to it in the movies, and yeah. he really makes it believable,
1: yeah like, no this it's is like how a tree if, would talk yeah if a, exactly if a tree could talk, it would talk like that
0: yeah. And if this tree could say mean things about someone, it would probably say mean things about Saruman. And it does. So we should talk about Saruman. Jesus Christ! That was that was bad. That was really bad. I know. And there know. were really easy ones to do there too. Oh absolutely. But I'm just testing you now. Fuck you. <laughs> okay, Saruman. Christopher Lee, tell us about him.
1: Christopher Lee is awesome he's got a really deep voice and he played Dracula a lot so
0: that's all we really need to say
1: yeah no that's I mean fucking Christopher Lee I think Christopher Lee is one of the best like villainous actors there is and there should be more Christopher Lee (laughs) absolutely yep do do you want to say anything more? well are you you (laughs) trying to buy time to think up your next oh I haven't
0: I'm trying to get it out without laughing
1: Okay, Uh, so we're done talking about Saruman.
0: Well, no, but The other thing
1: we're going to finish talking about later on is... (laughs) No,
0: Saruman, what's the main, you know, culture of people he terrorizes? It's the Rohirrim and people of Rohan. And, uh, you know, who's the leader of Rohan? That would be Theoden. So we should talk about Theoden and Bernard Hill.
1: Okay, Theoden.
0: That's not... That wasn't terrible.
1: No, that was awful. That was, like, that's such just a roundabout fucking (laughs) stupid way to try to... Like, we're, like... We're going to end up forgetting half the characters because you're, like, trying to zigzag across, making the most loose possible connections instead of just going, like, a logical order. But fine. Whatever. Theoden. What do you want to say about Theoden?
0: I think Theoden is great. He is absolutely one of my favorite characters. I just... I've always loved this character since... I saw him for the first time, because Bernard Hill just does a great job with it. Bernard Hill is one of those character actors who, whenever he pops up in anything, you know he's going to be good, and he really gets the chance to just show what he can do in this trilogy, and I think he's really good.
1: I agree. He's, really. got, he's got some quality speeches. He
0: does, and he's very regal. He, you can believe him being a leader for these people. Yeah. And, you know, that obviously creates a good contrast with, like, Denethor, who's obviously a very bad leader for his people. Yeah. They'll do you we'll want to talk, talk about, about, about Denethor now? No, that would be going completely out of order. Okay. God damn it, Sean. Okay. But what do you think about Theoden?
1: I, I completely agree with you. I think, because, and it's also, it's one of those things where I did not, the character of Theoden, I did not picture f- f- like this. With, so it's like, a lot of the characters I sort of like, in my head, were similar to how they realized them on film. The Theoden, I always, I always kind of pictured Theoden in my head being more like how you first encounter Theoden, where he's like all fucked up and like corrupted by Grimer Worm Tongue and Saruman's, whatever the fuck Saruman's doing to him, giving him some really weird-ass shit. But, yeah,
0: yeah the, the, like
1: that's how I always kind of, because I always kind of pictured him being a lot older, but I, I really like the sort of really kick-ass Theoden they have in the movies.
0: I do, too. And, you know, the, the, there are some changes to Theoden in the films. Primarily, he, he kind of, like Aragorn or some of the other characters, has an arc now. And in yeah. the books, he's really just, once Gandalf sort of frees him from his brainwashing, Theoden just decides he's going to save Rohan, go to war, you know, hold up at Helm's Deep and fight. But in the movies, he's he's got more doubt, he's not sure what to do, he's sort of antagonistic towards Aragorn. Um, but I think it works really well in the Two Towers, because sort of that, there's a very much a satisfaction to the mutual respect they all yeah. develop.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, the one thing I do have to say about Theoden is I like how they do the thing where he's all sort of like corrupted and fucked up before, it seems kind of a bit much, almost like uh, maybe a little bit over-exaggerated to right. how I would imagine it being, or it's like don't these people kind of figure out there's something really weird going on when Theoden used to look like Bernard Hill and now he looks like that thing? Not, yeah, no, you guys should have figured out that something was fucked up before Gandalf showed up.
0: I agree. And, you know, in the book, it's much more subtle. He isn't literally under a spell. Yeah,
1: it's, he's, yeah.
0: It's, It's just Wormtongue has been, like, draining him down and draining him down and draining him down. And speaking of that, we should probably mention Wormtongue.
1: Okay, that was there.
0: Okay, that's a good one. Creamer right. Wormtongue. Creamer I forget the name of the actor, but I really like this actor.
1: Yeah, it is one of those actors that's not like a huge, like, you know, performance in a movie that you would remember him, but he yeah. pops up every now and then. I'm like, yeah, Screamer, he's great.
0: Yeah, and he's really good in these movies. I mean, he gets, that's again, that's just Wormtongue, how you imagine him being yeah. sort of pathetic, but also a little threatening.
1: Yeah, and he's just really sly and kind of just a disgusting human being. I mean, his name is Creamer Tongue. It's kind yeah. of it kind of sucks to be like his parents must have been assholes. Yeah. It's like already you have the surname Worm Tongue, but now Greemer.
0: Yeah. Goddamn. Uh, the actor is Brad Dourif, and why I always like Brad Dourif is because he's in the game Mist Three Exile, which my dad always used to play, and he's the bad guy in that. And it's because Mist uses all like full motion video. Yeah. For their characters, and he's really cool in that game.
1: The f- oh, the, the long lost days of full motion video.
0: Oh, I know. What yeah. a tragedy we lost that.
1: Yeah, I don't well I mean fuck it. We've got Wing Commander three and Wing Commander Four with like Mark Mark Hamill and Speaking yeah. of Tragedies. <laughs> speaking of Mark Hamill, can we connect can we somehow connect Mark Hamill?
0: I was gonna say speaking of tragedies, Eowyn loses her brother, and that's pretty sad, so we should talk about Eowyn. Okay about Ewan. Is it her brother or is it a cousin?
1: aylmer is I want to say it's her cousin.
0: But I a- no, Aylmer is alive. Eowyn... Oh, oh, you mean about? oh you mean the the
1: son. Okay, yeah, it's, Eowyn, Eowyn. son. Eowyn. it's just her
0: cousin. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. God, I got We're that totally wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, Eowyn, I love that character. She's really well done. Miranda yeah. Otto, really good.
1: I agree. And they they definitely like I like Eowyn, with like the books and the audio book oh, I just kinda of forgot Eowyn existed. Yeah. they, they make her much more Compelling Active. and significant character in the movie yeah. I
0: feel. Even though for to be honest, they don't change much about her. That's just Yeah, They, they, don't. they, they just... make her a little less fatalistic. Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we should probably talk about obviously Ail Murr, her brother. Yeah. Speaking of people whose names begin with the letters E and O. I didn't I didn't do that. You should not put those then I'm doing it now. Okay. I'm doing it now.
1: <laughs> Fuck you. Speaking uh, of people whose names begin with the letters E and O, let's talk about Aylmer.
0: And this is Carl Urban, who would go on to be probably the most kick-ass supporting character from this trilogy, because Carl Urban has been in a bunch of great stuff. Yeah. Most notably, he's the new McCoy in the Star Trek movies, and probably my favorite character in the J.J. J. Abrams Star Trek.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because
0: he just, he gets McCoy. Mm-hmm. But he also gets Eomer. He's really good. Yeah. Even if it's even if it's kind of a small small part in these movies, because is really just sort of the warrior. Yeah. But this is actually heavily beefed up from the books too because I forget the name of the character but there's a different character who does most of Aomer's stuff in the book The Two Towers. Glorfindel. It's not Glorfindel.
1: But it's the Two Towers Glorfindel.
0: Right. Well, except he does a lot. It's, yeah. Um, I hope I can find the name of the guy but uh, it's Erkenbrand. Erkenbrand is the leader uh, yeah. of... Oh, yeah. I do remember that now. Yeah, Erkenbrand is a major character in the Two Towers book, and he's also there in The Return of the King 2. They just, Erkenbrand and Eomer sort of merge, and actually Eomer has a lot more of Erkenbrand's qualities in the film than he does Eomer's, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But he's a cool character. I agree. So, speaking of cool characters... So this
1: could go anywhere. Aragorn! <laughs> That's the, that, Now we're going to. That's the one you pick. Now we're going to Aragorn. For fuck's sake, that, that's the like the, maybe the, like the, the, right behind Frodo and Sam the biggest most important character in the movies. And that's how you get to Aragorn. We went
0: all the way through fucking Elrond and to Naomir to get to Aragorn. I thought it was good. Fuck you. Just fuck you. Alright, well, what character should we go to? I've, I've, I think we're done. I think, Jesus Christ. I just feel like we've taken way too long to get to Aragorn. It's...
1: But it's, we should have fucking started and just gone through the fellowship from the
0: beginning. I don't know why we dealt with all this fucking segue bullshit. Well, but now we can segue from Aragorn to all the other human characters. Like Boromir.
2: Okay.
1: okay. See? It makes total I'm, sense. Okay, here we go. I've got a better one. Aomir's <laughs> name has vowels in it. You know whose other person's name has vowels in it? Fucking
0: Aragorn. I think that's just cruel, Sean.
1: Just talk about Aragorn.
0: All right, Viggo Mortensen, Aragorn. Come on, talk about it, Sean. He's
1: Aragorn. He's son of Arathorn. He, he's the heir to Gondor. He's got a sword. He gets another sword, but in the, in the, in the book, he has that the first sword for the whole time.
0: All right. Well, let's describe how Aragorn in the movies is, has sort of been expanded upon from Aragorn in the books.
1: Okay. So in 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 the books, like we said, Aragorn kind of has already gone through his whole I-want-to-be-king thing, and so by the beginning, once you meet him as Strider, he's carrying around the Shards of Narsil. He's like, I'm, I am I want to become King of Gondor. I need an opportunity to do it, and that's kind of where he's at the whole time. He's just trying to get to Gondor and then fulfill his mission with the Ring. And as opposed to in the movies, he's, he's doing the whole Ring thing, but he doesn't want to become King of Gondor yet. He doesn't he feels like his he's got this burden as being the heir to Isildur who kind of fucked everything up because he was all like, no. So he's all angsty about that and then eventually he stops being angsty about it. Yeah. That's
0: Aragorn. Oh, thank you. I like how you just described it. He just stops being angsty.
1: Well, yeah. That's that's the core. The, his character arc in the movie is I don't know about this and then arriving at the point where it's like, yeah, okay. But do you think it works? Yeah, no. I, yeah. I really like it. Again, it's one of those changes where... In a film, you do need to have much more dramatic character arcs because it's not this, you're not like reading something, you're not so heavily involved in it where you're, instead you're witnessing it. So you need to have these very dramatic character arcs, and they had to construct. And Aragorn of is, characters.
0: is sort of your secondary protagonist. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because again, particularly for Two Towers and Return of the King, the story branches off where it, like half of it is Frodo and Sam doing their shit, and the other half of it is Aragorn and all the other guys doing their shit. And so Aragorn's sort of leading that pack. So they need yeah. to make him a very compelling, dynamic figure. All
0: right. Well, I'll say Aragorn is my second favorite move, character in these movies, very close to Gandalf in that respect. I just really love him. And Viggo Mortensen has, has turned in, out to be one of my favorite actors of all time. Yeah, he's yeah. a great actor. I mean, you look at some of the movies he's done since then, uh, I think Hidalgo was the first big one he did. Not a great yeah. movie, he's awesome in it. Yeah, yeah. And then, but the, the, the notable ones are probably the David Cronenberg movies. I mean, The History of Violence is phenomenal, and yeah. he's amazing in that. And also Eastern Promises, mm-hmm. where he has the naked bath fight, which is horrifying to watch.
1: Yeah, that's like... And what I love with Viggo Mortensen is that after he did Lord of the Rings, he goes off and does a bunch of Cronenberg movies. Like, that's yeah. such... It's such a weird, like, sidestep that now I'm going to do these really artsy, R-rated Cronenberg flicks.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. He, he played... I've always forget he did play uh, Carl Jung. No, no, Sigmund Freud, sorry, yeah. in, in a Cronenberg film, A Dangerous Method. Not a good movie, but he was good in it. He's, he's just a, a top-notch actor. Yeah. And he's really great in these. Just portraying sort of that... You, for one, I think you really get that rugged sense with Viggo Mortensen, which yeah. most movie stars, or whoever you would put in this kind of role, they would be kind of playing that. Viggo Mortensen feels like he is that.
1: Yeah. It's like, for some reason, it feels like Viggo Mortensen has never taken a shower in his life, even though I'm sure he has, but it's like yeah. his hair is always sort of like that, particularly in these movies where he's got the really long hair.
0: Yeah. Yes but he just he looks cool, he sounds cool, he does yeah. great with the speeches, all the emotional material he is this is a grade a performance. it's fantastic acting, and yeah. it's just such a compelling character to me because he's it's interesting he's not the savior of middle Earth, but he's kind of the guy who backs up the saviors yes, yeah. he wasn't there you know he's he's very much sort of the kingly kind of character of someone who has to go through all these trials basically for the sake of other people, yeah. In, in, in essence. And he has something to work for himself, which is Arwen, but the great struggle there is that he could have Arwen whenever he wants. He could always, there's always that temptation for him that he could just go back to Rivendell and be with the love of his life and not worry about this. He, he could
1: marry the daughter of Steve Tyler. Right. That means he could hang out with Steve fucking Tyler. That'd be great. that awesome.
0: Yeah. But instead, you know, he goes off to war and he does all these great things and he's a very compelling character. And obviously, again, he is different on page but these are... To me, this is one of the smartest changes in the whole trilogy. Because it it makes it makes a very large... It doesn't just make Aragorn d- dynamic. It makes a large swath of the films more dynamic. I mean, you add a lot in there. Yeah. So, Rounding out the Fellowship, we should probably talk about... If
1: you're not going to do another? You're done with your well, I mean, shitty segues?
0: Aragorn's a man of Gondor. Boromir's a man of Gondor. We can do that. Okay, there we go. Let's but he's that. also... Boromir's the last one of the Fellowship that we should talk about. He's okay. also the first to die. It's Sean Bean... That's, this is another one where Sean Bean is Boromir. Yeah, that's they, Boromir from the book, and yeah. it's perfect.
1: And I, I, I mean, when, with the audiobook and everything, Boromir was always one of those characters I never cared about before I, I saw the movies. I always kind of like, kind of just forgot he was one of the Fellowship because he does die pretty early on in like the whole scope of
0: the story. Right, his and, death kicks off the breaking of the Fellowship and yeah. all these things.
1: And so, like Boromir was never a character I really. Like thought about or remembered, Sean Bean makes Boromir fucking awesome. I yeah. especially like I have, that's that's like I said where that scene hit me so much harder the last time I watched the movies. That performance, like I love that performance more and more every single time I watch it. I don't know what it is about it, but it's, it's a like,
0: really good performance. Yeah,
1: it's like and it's especially one because once you have the whole perspective of the other like scenes that are added on for his character later on in the other films. Yeah, it's like you get this really good sense of who who this version of Boromir really is. And it's like very compelling to me compared to... I
0: never cared that much about him in the books. Yeah. Well, and Sean Bean is just a damn good actor. Yeah, yeah. And he's proven that again in, in works in Lord of the Rings, obviously, most notably Game of Thrones, but he's Where pretty good. I was...
1: I haven't watched any of Game of Thrones. I'm going to wait till it's done and then I'm going to watch it, but I always loved when, like, that was coming out and they had, like, all the teaser trailers and, like, the posters of him just standing there. It's like... They should have just, like, on those trailers They should have said, like, Game of Thrones, fucking Boromir. And just like in it with that—that's
0: how they advertised season one. Yeah, basically,
1: it was like all I don't—I just no, I don't like—I know almost nothing about Game of Thrones. I just know fucking
0: Bormir. I
1: know his name is not Bormir. He probably is kind of different than Bormir. Fucking Bormir.
0: Well, and it's—it's it's, Game of Thrones is an ensemble piece, and yeah. he's no one is the main character at all. But you, how else are you going to advertise fucking it? Fucking Bormir. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, yeah. Sean Bean dies in everything he ever made. Yes, pretty much. So.
1: He, and it's he a, dies spectacularly in the Fellowship oh yeah
0: it's a great death it's a fucking painful one to watch no matter how many times you see it yeah arrow one arrow two yeah it's like whatever, whatever sound effect they got the thud when it goes in him that's yeah. like sickening it's like <laughs> <clears throat> yeah
1: no it's like yeah that seems fucking brutal that like that seems just like makes you realize the reality of getting shot with a fucking arrow where <laughs> you just have this like wooden shaft sticking out of your chest all of a sudden like that's fucked up
0: yeah it's it's too bad so they should have should have worn Sean Bean into like the Hunger Games somewhere so he could do he could get shot with an arrow. There's a bunch he, of archery in that. He can get shot with an arrow by the, like, the best of them. Yeah. And he's a pro at that. He is. So in any case um, what other characters are there to talk about? Other men of Gondor his father Denethor. Yep. This is John Noble. I love John Noble. He's a really good actor. Yep. Um, He's, he's a lot of fun on the show Fringe which I stopped watching because it was a steaming pile of horseshit, but Uh, John Noble's good on it. Okay. Yeah, but he's really good at just crazy Denethor, but crazy in a way where you kind of understand him. You don't really hate him at any moment. I guess you do kind of hate him, but you don't ever get to that point where you don't want to watch him.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think, and he's really good at eating stuff in a really gross way. He's very good at that. In a way that I've never seen anybody else eat.
0: We already talked about David Wenham as Faramir, and that he's really good at sort of reinterpreting that character. Yeah. Uh, doing a very good job at it. Is there really anyone else left?
1: I could probably tell you, but we made such a bizarre, winding path throughout the cast of the characters of the Lord of Wait. the Rings that we went in no particular order whatsoever that I cannot remember which ones we've talked about. So, we've Sean, had.
0: don't you tell me we went in no particular order whatsoever. We went from hobbits to golem, back to hobbits, to wizard, to elves, to... Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's the order we went from...
1: Speaking of characters we haven't talked about, we didn't talk about the moth that Gandalf talks to.
0: Radagast the Brown. Yeah. Are you excited for Radagast in the Hobbit movie? Yeah, Sylvester McCoy. Fuck, fuck yeah. Oh yeah. A- anything. anything Sylvester McCoy is in, I will watch. Nice. And I will enjoy. You're already going to watch and enjoy The Hobbit. Right. well yeah, You're yeah. Watch it and enjoy even sports. more so now <laughs> yes so there's some choice in there so anything else to say about the Lord of the Rings film trilogy uh, battery on my laptop's running low so we should probably wrap this up
1: that's yeah that's a good idea okay um, they're man, great movies it, it, all the shitty segues really took the wind out of my sails I have to say uh,
0: I'm sorry Sean that's, that,
1: was, that, was a, that was a rough patch of podcast there Jonathan
0: I, I apologize I think it was probably entertaining for our listeners and if it wasn't please email Sean at the wgtcradio.com okay, okay. That's not actually an email address. but You can, can fucking try. Okay. In I any, don't go to find it, but... <laughs> nevertheless, Lord of the Rings, it's, it's my favorite movie of all time. And I grouped them all together because you can do that. And they're great. I love these movies to death. I would not be the sort of film critic I am. I wouldn't do what I do with film if it weren't for Lord of the Rings. These movies are just... This is what film adaptation should be. Yeah. It just, it's, to me, it's the pinnacle of that. Uh, as an art of, of you know, taking a book and turning it into a movie. This is how you do it, and this is how you do it well. And yeah. they are they are fantastic movies. What boggles me, you know, we were talking about all the characters, and that that you have this massive cast of characters, for one, is, and that you can service all of them at the same time is mind-boggling. But that Peter Jackson cast this whole movie without miscasting a single person? Yeah. How does that happen? I don't know. It that just doesn't seem possible. It's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah.
1: So anything you want to say? I I think for me, it's like what Lord of the Rings does better than anything still is sort of as a fantasy movie constructing the world that it exists in. And obviously it's built on the like unprecedented foundation that J.R.R. Tolkien provided, but they were able to realize that visually in such a meticulous and fascinating way where it's like, you know, the movies are so amazing to just watch on that level where you get completely absorbed in the world that they create. But then also, it's just the process of having to make that. It's so fascinating that you have all the it's like bonus materials that are just phenomenal on the DVDs and then just like books and everything about the production of the films. that's like that side of it to me is so monumentally fascinating and such an achievement that it still has not been
0: beaten. Yeah, and we didn't really mention it, but I think one of the most important aspects in building the world of Middle-earth on film is the music. Yeah. And I don't want to get too deep into it, because I think that would be its own podcast, but Howard Shore's score for Lord of the Rings is, without a doubt, in my mind, the best film score of all time. There's nothing... I mean, he... Is, for one, it's a, you know, it's a 12-hour score, but just the work he did and 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 the focus he puts on... He, he writes a lot of themes. It's a theme-based score. It's a theme and, and leitmotif-based score. But all the themes and leitmotifs are about cultures and areas. There's no specific character themes. Mm-hmm. And that's what builds the world of Middle-earth. You yeah. get the sense of what the Shire is, partially because Howard Shore helps you along with his music. Yeah. You get a sense of what Rohan is, because of the musical styles he uses there. Uh, it just, it's great music.
2: Yep. Speaking okay. of great music, Glorfindel.